Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. General Dempsey, you, you are, in one of your criteria for determining um, what we might do militarily, you say you have to ask the question whether the action is worth the cost and is consistent with law. What law does the United States military look to? Yeah, if I could, since uh, I'd like to address both because they are related. So cost, resources, um, risk incurred elsewhere by the use of force one other place. So, you know, it's a zero-sum game. We take them for someplace else, we use them for how long, and, and uh, that's, that's the kind of issue of cost, is it? And, of course, in blood and treasure. Um, the issue of legal basis is, is important, though. Um, you know, we, again, we act with the authorized use of military force either at the consent of a government, so we're invited in, or... Uh, out of national self-defense, which, and it's a very, um, there's a very clear criteria for that. And then the last one is with some kind of international legal basis, an UNSCR. Wait a minute. Uh, let's talk about an international legal basis. Um, you answer under the Constitution to the United States government, do you not? And you don't need any international support before you would... Uh, uh, carry out a military operation authorized by the commander. No, of course not. That's, the, sec- that's the second well, one. I just want to know that because there's a lot of references in here to uh, international matters before we make a decision. And I want to be sure that the United States military understands, and I know you do, that uh, it, we're not dependent on a NATO resolution or UN resolution to execute policies consistent with the national security of the United States. So, now, Secretary Pinella, you, in your talk, in your remarks, uh, you, you talk about, uh, uh, first, we're working first. We're working to increase diplomatic isolation and encouraging other countries to join uh, the European Union and Arab League in, in uh, imposing sanctions. And then you note that China and Russia have repeatedly blocked the UN Security Council from taking action. Uh, are, are you saying, and is the president taking the position, he would not act um, if it was in our interest to do so if the UN Security Council did not agree? When it comes to uh, uh, the kind of military action where we want to build con- uh, a coalition and work with our international partners, then obviously we would like to have some kind of legal basis on which to do it as we did in Libya. Now, some sort of legal basis. We worried about international legal basis, but nobody worried about the fundamental constitutional uh, legal basis that this Congress has over war. We were not asked, uh, stunningly, 
in direct violation of the War Powers Act, whether or not you believe it's constitution, it certainly didn't comply with it. We spent our time worrying about the UN, the Arab League, NATO, and too little time, in my opinion, worried about the elected representatives of the United States. Do you think that you can act without Congress uh, to and initiate a no-fly zone in Syria without congressional approval? You know, again, uh, our our goal would be to uh, to seek international permission, and uh, we would we would come to the Congress uh, and inform you uh, and determine uh, how best to approach this. Uh, whether or not we would uh, want to get uh, permission from the Congress, uh, I think those are issues we would have to discuss as we decide what to do here. Well, I'm almost breathless about that because what I heard you say is we're going to seek international approval and they will come and tell the Congress what we might do and we might seek congressional approval. Well, I want to just say to you, that's a big dish. Wouldn't you agree uh, you served in the Congress? Yeah. Wouldn't you agree that that uh, would be pretty breathtaking to the average American? So would you like to clarify that? But I've, uh, I, I, you know, we, I've also uh, served uh, with Republican presidents and Democratic presidents who has all, always reserved the right to defend this country if necessary. But you, before we do this, you would seek permission of the international authorities. If we're, work, if we're working with an international coalition and we're working with NATO, uh, we would uh, want to be able to uh, get uh, appropriate permissions in order to be able to, to do that. That's, that's something that you know, all of these countries would want to have some kind of legal basis on which to act. Well, what legal basis are you looking for? What, what entity? Well, I, obviously, the U, if, if NATO made the decision to go in, that would be one. Uh, if uh, if we if we developed an international coalition beyond NATO, uh, then obviously some kind of UN security resolution. No, and a coalition of. So you're saying NATO would give you a legal basis, and uh, um, an ad hoc coalition of nations would provide a legal basis. If we if we, if we were able to put together a coalition, uh, and uh, were able to move together then obviously we would seek whatever legal basis we would need in order to make that uh, uh, justified. I mean, you, you know, we can't just pull them all together uh, in a uh, combat operation without getting the, uh, the legal basis on which to act. Well, who are you asking for the legal basis for? If it's, uh, obviously, if the U.N. passed a security resolution, as it did in Libya, we would do that. Uh, if, uh, if NATO came together, as we did in Bosnia, uh, we would rely on that. So, you know, we, we have options here uh, if we want to build uh, the kind of international approach to dealing with the situation. Well, I'm for all for having an in, international support, but I, I'm really baffled by the idea that, that somehow an international assembly provides a legal basis for the United States military to be deployed in combat. I don't believe it's close to being correct. They, have, they provide no legal authority. The only legal authority that's required to deploy the United States military is uh, the Congress and the President and the law and the Constitution. Let me just for the record be clear again, Senator, so there's no misunderstanding. When it comes to the national defense of this country, the President of the United States has the authority under the Constitution to act to defend this country, and we will. 
if it if it comes to an operation where we're trying to build a coalition of nations to work together to go in and operate as we did in Libya or Bosnia, for that matter, Afghanistan, we want to do it with permissions either by NATO or by the international community. All right, you want to know the secret to getting a Ferrari or Lamborghini like this? Drop out of college. idea, a new world order, where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind. With few exceptions, the world now stands as one. A year and a half ago, in Germany, I said that our goal was a Europe whole and free. Tonight, Germany is united. Europe has become whole and free. The world can therefore seize this opportunity to fulfill the long-held promise of a new world order. We can find meaning and reward by serving some higher purpose than ourselves. A shining purpose. The illumination of a thousand points of light.
country. It is a big idea, a new world order, where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace and security, freedom and the rule of law. Congressional Committee to tell what I knew of activities which might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. President Bush signed a formal agreement that will end the United States as we know it. And he took the step without approval from either the U.S. Congress or the people of the United States. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. Known as the Bilderberg Group. Could their objective be world domination? Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said we are seeing a new 21st century world order being built. And although there are conflicts and complications, there's still hope. I think what's more hopeful, and maybe than any other time in the history of the world, is that we have more opportunities and more possibilities and more resources and more capacity to do more good for more people. We meet here at a moment of test for Europe and the United States and for the international order that we have worked for generations to build. But part of what makes us different is that we welcome criticism. Just as we welcome the responsibilities that come with global leadership. We look to the east and the south and see nations poised to play a growing role on the world stage, and we consider that a good thing. It reflects the same diversity that makes us stronger as a nation. And the forces of integration and cooperation that Europe has advanced for decades. And in a world of challenges that are increasingly global, all of us have an interest in nations stepping forward to play their part, to bear their share of the burden, and to uphold international norms. But at this moment, we must meet the challenge to our ideals, to our very international order, with strength, 
picture. And it is you, the young people of Europe, young people like Laura, who will help decide which way the currents of our history will flow. Do not think for a moment that your own freedom, your own prosperity, that your own moral imagination is bound by the limits of your community, your ethnicity, or even your country. You're bigger than that. You can help us to choose a better history. That's what Europe tells us. The policies of your government, the principles of your European Union, will make a critical difference in whether or not the international order that so many generations before you have strived to create continues to move forward or whether it retreats. And that's the question we all must answer. What kind of Europe? What kind of America? What kind of world will we leave behind? I congratulate you on taking your place on the long gray line. The world is changing with accelerating speed. This presents opportunity, but also in dangers. It will be your generation's task to respond to this new world. It's, I think its task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. It's a great opportunity, and it is a, a crisis. It's a need for a new world order, but it has different characteristics in different parts of, of the world. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order because the global order is changing again. And the institutions, the rules that worked so well in the post-World War II era for decades, uh, they need to be strengthened. The, the way we're going to win over the long term is not just militarily. We've got to win over uh, hearts and minds. What that means is we've got to invest in countries that uh, have no educational infrastructure, have no uh, means for young people to, to get ahead. We've got to give them a stake in creating the kind of uh, a world order that I think all of us would like to see. After 1989, President Bush kept said, and it's a phrase that I often use myself, that we needed a new world order. each of us has to build a new world order in which nations and peoples with different systems and different values can live together in peace. And I strongly believe India will be a central actor in the new world order. The President George Bush has talked time and time again about the new world order. And this is the best chance to begin to establish the new world order. But it is the awareness itself that will drive the change. And one of the ways it will drive the change is through global governance and global agreements. 
With the end of the Cold War, Henry Kissinger pointed out in his superb book on diplomacy, he said, none of the most important countries which must build a new world order have had any experience with the multi-state system that is emerging. Never before has a new world order had to be assembled from so many different perceptions or on so global a scale, nor has any previous order had to combine the attributes of the historic balance of power system with global democratic opinion and the exploding technology of the contemporary period. That was written in 1994, and it may be even more relevant today. As I've told you before, because I love it so much, they also created the Great Seal of the United States. And that Great Seal of the United States has on it Nobus Order Secorum, a new order for the centuries, for the ages, forever. That this crisis in the way that has developed will require some kind of a world order. Good evening, everybody. President Obama and British Prime Minister Gordon today calling for a new world order to tackle our global economic crisis. And the president outlined his vision of a new world order in which the U.S. would participate fully. So I see a world order in the future with a multipolar world order. But in a globalized economy, we are going to have to take global responsibilities. And there is going to have to be some semblance of global governance. There also exists an extraordinary opportunity for the first time in history, a truly global society. Well, during the, during the conflict with Saddam Hussein, which he handled so superbly in, in a short-term sense, he kept talking about a new world order. Uh, and, and, and then President Bush, at the end of, the, of that war, promised he would give four graduation addresses, four commencement addresses, describing that new world order and what American role was going to be in it. Turned out he gave one of those addresses and canceled the other three talking about something else. That's what, but they weren't ready yet. And this present window of opportunity during which a truly peaceful, and interdependent world order might be built will not be here for open for too long. 2009 is also the first year of global governance with the establishment of the G20 in the middle of the financial crisis. The climate conference... Before we go any further, I just want to let you, anyone who listens to this to realize one thing. Everything, every person you've heard so far is a Jesuit trained Roman Catholic, a Jesuit. You hear G20, G7, all that, they get Jesu, these Jesuits. Everyone you've heard so far, there's Panetta, etc. Right now you're listening to the EU president. They all are uh, Van Rumpy, Herman Van Rumpy. They're all. They're not Jews. They're Roman Catholic uh, or Jesuit trains. Nice Maltos. Many of them are nice Maltos. As we developed. This this show, this recording, I want you to keep that in mind. And keep in the back of your mind. Supreme Court Justice, and I'll keep harping it about it, but it is the judicial branch of any government that has the real power. You have six Jesuits, one's an Opus Dei, I know there are other sorts of ones, but they're all Roman Catholics, the six, and then there's three Talmudic Jews in the New World Order.
very important to talk about this, regardless of what people say, if they call you a bigot or a racist or whatever, this is the reality. These are the people who feel they have a divine right to rule over you. We'll carry on. In Copenhagen is another step towards the global management of our planet. We will have the kind of global governance that is necessary to ensure the stability and transparency of markets in a way that gives us the benefits of a globalized market economy without the enormous risks. It's about the future of the whole region. It's about the future of Europe and a new world order. The transatlantic partnership was never just the foundation of our security. It was the foundation of our way of life. It was forged an experience of the most bitter and anguished kind. Out of it came a new Europe, a new world order, a new consensus as to how life should and could be lived. this video it's 666 2020 new world order hd and right now it's showing the future world new world order coin and it's the shape of the upside down pentagram that you will find in jesuit churches international regulators. An Italian court investigating the bank found documents showing some accounts had been used for money laundering and other illegal, and for the church highly embarrassing, activities. Vatican watchers like Marco Politi have studied the court documents that verified the bank's transactions have not always been kosher. There was many of the mafia who was recited through the channels of the Vatican Bank and also bribed money to political parties in Italy went through the Vatican Bank. With dark financial clouds hanging over the Vatican, the European Union insisted the bank open its accounts to public scrutiny. When it was too slow, tourists felt the pinch. When European bankers suspended the Vatican's credit card facilities, visitors couldn't use plastic to buy Sistine Chapel tickets. 
$30 million of Vatican money in Italian banks was seized and only released when the church promised to reform. Now Swiss lawyer René Brulhart, who helped clean up other secretive European banks, has been brought in. But still the bank keeps many of its dealings private and not just from outsiders. South African Cardinal Wilfred Napier, who sits on a committee that's supposed to sign off on the Vatican's books, told us he still can't get the information he needs. I'm one of those 15 cardinals who sits on that committee, and we sign our name to the report. I want to know that, that I'm signing something that is actually reflecting the truth. There's another scandal with a girl who disappeared in the Vatican 20 years ago, and they say they may have found her remains. The Italian police are leading the investigation, but instead of helping them, the Vatican is obstructing the investigation. It's likely they knew about this and stayed silent. And on top of all those cases of pedophilia, this is just disgusting. The list of controversial events involving Catholic priests or Vatican officials reads like a tabloid. Reports of sex abuse, pedophilia accusations, alleged large-scale corruption and possible ties with the mafia. While the media, especially in Italy, has been having a field day with the scandals, the Vatican either stayed silent or rebuffed all accusations. David Lorenz, the director of a group called the Survivors Network of those abused by priests, doubts the new pope will bring much change to the Vatican. Nikki Davis says she was sexually abused by a Catholic brother, but she's no longer afraid to talk about it. Yet she says she knows of two other child abuse survivors who say they've been threatened not to talk to the Royal Commission. Some victims are reporting having received death threats because the information, the knowledge that they have, their personal experience is too damaging to the Catholic Church. Center from about August 23rd until every night until about September 2nd, September 3rd. And the trucks were arriving at about 3 o'clock in the morning when everybody else had left the building, including the janitorial trucks. And the trucks were leaving at 5 a.m. right before the AAA personalities of Wall Street got to work to start their day. Something was brought into that building that would help with the detonation. There may have been work done on the detonation before. Uh, it may have been going on for months, but whatever they needed at the very end, they came and brought in those, that 10-day period. The purpose of that infiltration was what for? 
Well, the purpose is what the Roman Catholic system has all the time as, a, as our own purpose, is to infiltrate, to penetrate all the areas of life where the Roman Catholic can have control and access for the coming world government. What that means is in preparation for that world government, the Roman Catholic institution, especially since the establishment of the Jesuit order in 1541, throughout these 500 years, they've been in preparation and in, in, in through infiltration and penetration of every uh, level uh, of society in order to uh, take over uh, the world uh, politically and religiously. There are two doctrines that define very well these, uh, these dangerous goal of the Roman Catholics. on the planet. With their ranks, they command scores of secret agents and secret societies worldwide. The Knights of Columbus, the Knights of Malta, Opus Dei, Freemasonry, CIA, NSA, MI5, MI6, CSIS, the ASO, the CNI, the Mossad, and many other intelligence agencies, and NASA. Okay, we have most of you listened to my show already know this, but we'll talk about it again. This Jesuit Supreme General, the Black Pope, of course, this is the older one, there's a new one now, Peter Hans Wolfenbeck, who resigned in 2008 after overseeing and arranging many of the agents of the Jesuit order during the planning and execution of 9 11 attack. And yes, the Mossad and the Jews were involved with it as well. They are their subordinate group. We talked about the faithful court Jews system. Now they willing to sell their soul for money and power. 
for what we call Jerusalem, which eventually is supposed to be, or was supposed to, prior to 1948, was supposed to be Hebrew land. And there's still land that's owed to them under the treaty, parts of uh, Lebanon and Syria. That's the reason why they're fighting side by side with ISIS. By the way, I discovered if you go to my Facebook page, nothing but the truth, talkshoe.com. I discovered two agencies, federal agencies, or at least one that's private, coming out of this country, ISIS, along with Israeli Mossad, which is the Israeli Secret Intelligence Service. They all work together, folks. Uh, the Supreme General, the, the Jesuit Supreme General, Black Pope, Adolfo Nicholas, incumbent Adolphus Nicholas, is carrying on the Jesuit legacy of infiltration, subversion, terrorism. I like how they all have to wear black, but it's not just the Jesuit priests, it's also the Pharisees and the Semitic Jews, their high priests, and even, let's face it, Islam and everyone else. It seems like anyone who's a high priest, you should probably think that over again, and maybe <laughs> those old stories of the Middle Ages of knights and, and uh, sorcerers and uh, haven't really left us, huh? The Jesuit uh, Malachi Martin wrote in his book, The Keys of This Blood, that he identifies the last decades of the 20th century as the end game for the New World Order. 9-11 happened one year after the 20th century ended. And you'll find that it was a Jesuit trained uh, a fellow from uh, Georgetown that actually wrote the Patriot Act. Okay, 9-11 was the typical problem, reaction, solution. Of course, most of us who would listen to the show would know about this. this is the Hegelian dialect. Um, and I, I, I was talking, interacting with David Nikeo from uh, Christianityblease.org about this today when I discovered about these ISIS. ISIS uh, being, uh, I mean, I already knew that the United States government... NATO and UN were involved in all this, but uh, they actually find firm evidence of actual organizations coming out of this country and uh, suggesting that the next new um, major event like the Pearl Harbor or uh, 9-11, it will have something to do with JDL-15 and ISIS. But ISIS, they'll try to convince you as a bunch of uh, radical Islams, but they are actually working off of the same entity, the Roman Empire, in the New World Order. Anyways, 9-11 was a typical problem reaction solution model used to manipulate the masses. The main reason for the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan was to maintain the military presence in the region controlling the resources. Part of it's that way, but if you also are discovered too, and I don't know if you know about this, but in 1942, there was a new world, post, a post-war new world order map. <clears throat> and so part of that was this, what we now know as the state of Israel. <clears throat> and the map is called Hebrew land. And then there's Saudi Arabia and their republic or their kingdom. 
and they were promised that they would get large portions of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Iraq and Iran. Apparently, Afghanistan will go back to Asia to be part of um, whatever Russia will end up being. We'll find out if that if that happens or not. Of course, we're talking about Rome and. And, of course, when we talk about the Roman Empire, we're not just talking about the Vatican. We're also talking about all the different monarchies, whether it's the Habsburgs or if it's uh, Great Britain, etc. It doesn't really matter. Uh, They're all part of the Roman Empire, and they all serve the same entity, the dragon that gives them its power, otherwise known as Satan. But they're not unique in that, because all the the empires of the world are that way, where there's Japan. China, Japan, uh, Middle East, they're all in bed together. Uh, uh, Jesuit education would consist of the creation of a multi-agents, multiplying agents, the general, general the Jesuit general, Pedro Aruki, and uh, he, I think he was the one that was there in Japan during the bombing, amazingly him and a, a couple other, I don't know if it's seven or eight, nine, I can't remember. It's probably nine. And all of that number nine came out of amazing unscathed. So it was a pretty strong argument that they actually didn't drop a atomic bomb. They dropped a dirty bomb, and then they had the place lit up already and dynamite and everything else. I don't know. You and I will never probably know how it really worked out. We can only speculate. One thing's amazing that that man walked away unscathed, along with other Jesuit priests, for everybody else, their flesh and their their body, the flesh and their bodies and their bones was, was melting off. They were able to get away. Uh, General Michael Hayden, CIA director, 2006 through 2009, NSA director. And if you look at the NSA, if you look at it, it has the eagle, or what many people would say is the phoenix, and it's holding the gold, the, excuse me, the silver key. Uh, we know in uh, the Roman Empire and the papacy, it has their uh, their emblem, their uh, some whatever there it is. I can't think of what it's called right now for some reason. Uh, anyways, there's the gold key and silver key, one representing um, spiritual eternal power, the other one representing uh, temporal power, the silver key. And as a blatant, ex- for those who understand a little bit about symbology and what's coming out of Rome, it's a blatant symbol that says that the NSA is under the dictates control of the Jesuits in Rome. And so we have this General Michael Hayden, who turns out to be another Jesuit, anyways. He was educated in uh, Ducousney University. I'm not pronouncing it right. D U Q U. E-S-N-E, University. Yeah, there's Jews involved. They're the front group. That's where people stop right there because they see them on television and they think they figured everything out. Unfortunately, remember, television is a military weapon. It's it's designed as a form of mind control and manipulating the masses, and they want you to believe that the Jews do everything. I'm not giving them a break. I'm just letting you know. They serve Rome. They learn 
2,000 plus years ago, the Pharisees learned a long time ago that they were going to exist, that they were going to be obedient to Rome. And that's the reason why they're the ones still in power, not the Sadducees. The Pharisees. Okay, 9-11, George Tenet, CIA director from 1997 to 2004. George Tenet was educated at Jesuit Georgetown University. And... Uh, you know, when you raise your hand when you do these courts, it looks an awful lot like a version of the Roman salute, if you really think about it. Oh, it's wonderful to be part of the Roman Empire and be lied about it in real life. <laughs> uh, the George Bush gay gives Jesuit Georgetown trade 9-11 George Tenet a medal for the biggest intelligence blackout ever, many say treason, is of course talking about the 9-11 and their role in it. And by the way, you see all these people that got this Medal of Honor, um, all of them were Jesuit trained. <laughs> Imagine that. Oh, what a wicked organization it is. Light death. 1.2 billion people, what they really are about. When you look at ISIS, one of the things you'll want to remember when you look at the Jesuit symbol, once again, for those who listen to us, they figured this out, they know already. ISIS horse set is the symbol for the Jesuits. And, of course, it's an amazing that you see ISIS all over the place. And then, of course, you've got Horus, the eye of Horus, and it's, uh, you know, Satan and all that jazz. So, uh, George Bush is a secret Catholic like his father, George Bush Sr., and both of these men have aided and abetted in the Vatican to take over the United States of, United States of America. And, of course, we've got the new Bush running for president, and he was he joined the Catholic Church back in the 1990s in order to become the governor of Florida. Because if you want to be anything in this country, you better be obedient to one group beyond these Talmudic Jews and their sorcery, there's a sorcery that's even stronger. And that black magic comes from the Jesuits. Yes, we live in a... Satan is the prince of this world, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's a fable or not, like I did most of my life. I was just a cartoon character. 9-11 Secretary of Defense, January 20, 2001 through December 18... And 2006, General Rumfeld, uh, Jesuit trained Georgetown. What a prick he is. I bet he's got a special place in hell. He even looks like it. Sorry about the language there, but this is the truth. Anybody, <laughs> anybody with a bit of a conscience <laughs> would have to agree about him. Okay, uh, the mighty and widely ramified order of the St. Ignatius, uh, the Jesuits, was powerful enough to procure by its interest far greater advantage to individuals than could, could any corporation, fraternity, or even secular power. The Jesuit general, Jean Baptist, Jan, I think it's Jansen. That's a quote from him way back when. And it's got the old the two keys in the crown and all the symbols. You got the well, I would love it. You got that whole four-sided star that you see that represents NATO and Europe right there. And then you got the other one. And uh, good grief! 
people. <laughs> we are so much part of the Roman Empire. It's 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 ridiculous uh, to uh, get the you know you would have to be just blinded by your own prejudice to nothing figured out. First, once again, I'll say like a million times, I'm not knocking the average Roman Catholic. You know, they don't know what's going on any more than the rest of us. So um, they're not they're not they're not part of that that group that was invited to the party. They're just being exploited like the rest of us. Barack Obama was groomed by Jesuits for by the Jesuits for president, especially by his mentor, former Jesuit priest Gregory Galuzzo. Uh, Obama once in office appointed many Jesuit trained staff and Roman Catholics into positions of power and influence. And one of the great things that they do is they convince people that if he <laughs> that he was a and, you know he could you know well understand in order to be a Jesuit you can also be a Muslim you can be a Buddhist a Hindu you know the ends justify the means does it matter to them? Because their goals are greater and different than yours and uh, and myself's. Uh, I, I, that did sound quite right, but yours and I. We don't think the way they think because we weren't trained to think the way they think. It's amazing that anybody comes out of this institution alive. Barack Obama received honorary Jesuit, uh, Notre, Dame, Jesuit Notre Dame degree. But then again, so did you, so did I. If you graduate from high school, believe it or not, from my research, I can figure it out whether you're in public school or private school. You received a Jesuit education and you received your degree. Okay, uh... Rupert Murdoch, media mogul and Jesuit asset, giving speech at Jesuit Georgetown University. Okay, so, somebody will say something. Or it's just going to be me. I thought I was going to get a little break here. Okay, <laughs> Janet Napoleon. Oh, you got to get used to this whole androgynous look. So there you go. Boy, do they love the whole idea of perverting you in every way, shape, and form. <clears throat> They're definitely behind the transgender agenda and the homosexual agenda. <clears throat> Janet Napoleano, Secretary of Homeland Security, 2009, comment a Roman Catholic and educated at Santa Clara Jesuit University. Now, I, going back to what I said, because I said everyone's received a Jesuit education in the Western, uh, in the Western world, um, <clears throat> saying that there's the amount and the degree and the knowledge of the faith and obedience to the Jesuit order. Most of us received our Jesuit education and don't even have a clue who a Jesuit is. These folks do. In fact, if you want to climb up the ladder, whether in politics and business, and be very helpful if you got a Jesuit education and were connected and obedient to the Jesuits. And, uh, even more so than if you're going to be a Jew. What a name. They were even called Jews 2,000 years ago, were they? I wonder why they figured out Jew. 
We were calling her one Judas, not even the right name. Uh, Porter Goss, CIA director from 2004-2005. Porter Goss attended Yale University and member of the Secret Society uh, Book and Snake. And that's a new one on me. Did you know about the Book and Snake? (laughs) Oh, what a funny trail we can go down there, huh? The Book and Snake. I've been studying, uh, hopefully this weekend, uh, Gordon Comstock was going to come back on with me, and we're going to have a discussion about 1984. And I started reading it, read the first uh, 115 pages last night, and, or 20 pages and 20 pages. <clears throat> By the way, you can uh, listen to the audio slash the reading as well if you want. And uh, I was almost in tears. You know, the last time I read that book, and we all know about it, and we all, you know, reference it, you know, in our reference bank of knowledge. But how many of us actually now, knowing what we now now, read 1984? It's quite tragic that it's all coming true. Literally. Anyways, um, Secret Society book and Snake. Look it up. Sure, not most of you had never even heard of that one. Ministry of Truth. Ah, uh, didn't finish reading all that. But anyways, Leanna Panetta, CIA director, 2009-2011, educated in Jesuit Santa Clara. A lot of these folks come out of the Santa Clara University. Uh, later, becoming Secretary of Defense. July 11th to July, July 2011 to uh, 2013. Oh boy, he's the one that was at the beginning of this uh, recording. He was talking about that uh, first and foremost, if they want to have inter, uh, geopolitical action like war, they go to NATO and the UN first, not to this Congress. David, uh, okay. Petraea, CIA director, 2010 to 2011, educated at Jesuit Georgetown University in Princeton University. John O. Brennan, Bren, uh, Brenner, John O. Brenner, excuse me, CIA, CI, excuse me, Central Intelligence Agency director from 2013, incumbent Jesuit Fordham. University, another Jesuit stronghold, will all come out of Florida as well. Michael Morrell serves as director between transition and elections of the new CIA directors since uh, July 11. President Michael Morrell was educated at Jesuit Georgetown University. A lot of these guys end up signing some kind of blood oath, whether it's the Jesuit oath or the Knights of Malta, Knights of Columbus, etc. They don't serve this country, nor do they serve any other country, unless you want to call the city-state of the Vatican. They actually serve the empire, the Roman Empire. They know this. And you and I, yeah, we were conveniently not told about this. That you are part of the Roman Empire. I find it fascinating every time you look at the United States flag and how it's draping over the pole as that pole is going vertical. The, the way the, the, the star is usually lined, they're like inverted pentagrams, isn't that? Okay, Chuck Hagel, uh, United States Secretary of Defense, 
February 13th in Convent, a distinguished professor at Jesuit Georgetown University. Well, the very first, if not the very first building that was built in what we now know as Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, which used to be uh, excuse me, Rome, Maryland. Dang, they told us that we were a poor Protestant country, didn't they? They lied about that. They lie about everything. They lie, literally lie about everything. And the problem is 90% of us believe those lies to our deaths. And we're willing to kill people over our lies that we believe in. Uh, the, the National uh, Security Agency and Central Intelligence Agency is controlled by the Roman Catholic Jesuit Order using Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Yahoo are all intelligence uh, applications that uh, may be uh, used against you or a member of your family now or in the future. I imagine that's the case. What a price it is to pay in this world to know the truth. If you're going to be joining me in this journey, you're in the same predicament as myself. How much do you love the truth? Because there's a heck of a price to pay. A real price to pay. Also, just to let you know, when it comes to Facebook, what's his face? I can't think of his name right now, but by the way, he is uh, relative, or I think he's a grandson or second, I uh, can't remember, second. I think he's the grandson of uh, Rockefeller. <laughs> Did you know that? That's healthy Jewish, though, doesn't it? But then again, a lot of these folks do. Hey, condition does not what a Jeep looks like with a big old nose and all that. It turns out not to be quite true. Okay, 9-11, ORAC Commander Ralph Everhart's, Everhart's 9-11 Commander of NORAD, Roman Catholic Jesuit agent, Senator Mark Dayton, remarked that this country and its citizens were completely undefended for 109 minutes on 9-11. I wonder why they did just make it 119 uh, and have it all reversed there. Uh, Dayton went on to clarify that the officials within the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, had covered up the fact about the lack of air defense. My lying to 9-11 Commission, to Congress, and the American people, and they were not held accountable. This is draining. But they've got to do it. got to do it. Regardless of what it, you know. <laughs> I finally found some real videos of these ISIS uh, early uh, beheading people. Nothing like what you see, the ones the, the fake ones. It's quite tremendous. <clears throat> quite barbaric. Oh, the nihilists. How oh, they use the nihilists to serve their agenda. They'll all be wiped out and have their place in hell. General Keith B. Alexander, NSA, director of the National Security Agency, 2005, Rome Catholic Jesuit Trade. Of course, it's got to be that way. But all the bankers are Jewish. Well, the ones you see. Maybe you got to start asking yourself the question: Why are the ones you only, the ones you only see are Jewish? 
And in 2005, the National Security Agency were involved in the top secret meeting about the proposed National Sunday Law. There were three religious organizations that were involved in the secret meeting in uh, Washington, D.C. They are the Christian Coalition of America, CC, the Christian Churches Together, the CCT, and the Catholic Campaign for American CCA. Note that these Christian groups have been infiltrated by the Jesuits. And, of course, for those who are Seventh-day Adventists and think there's some legitimacy between Saturday and Sunday, I want to remind you that 2,000 years ago, the Jews did not follow the Gregorian calendar. They followed the lunar calendar. It has nothing to do with Saturday or Sunday. That was another Jesuit deception. No, I'll piss you off to be saying that, but if you're really getting honest about it and study it and stop listening to the group and find out if that's in the case. Sunday or Saturday makes no difference except to the Roman Catholics and the apostate Christian churches in the world. And then, of course, Friday for the Islamic, the satanic religion of Islam. <laughs> Seems like all organizations at this point are satanic at the core. Anyways. But if the United States is a Christian country, what is wrong with the National Sunday Law? Let's see. It's a good thing I'm interjecting with this. Remember, the Constitution shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, and uh, abridging the freedom of speech, but the Sunday keeping cannot be found in the Bible. Why is that? Well, as I just explained to you, they followed the lunar calendar. And their seventh day, only periodically throughout the year, actually fell on a Saturday or a Sunday. Duh. That's why. And I tell you right now, the Seventh day Adventists are all corrupted, taken over by the Jesuits. They've given you a false argument. So now we'll go on to the next one. So this is, uh, and you say I'm not right, and I know there's a lot of Seventh day Adventists that listen to what I, I, I talk about and my show. I only ask you to not stop at the first reference or the second or the third one. Don't listen to your pastors and don't listen to everything that, you know, the Sunday Adventists, you can figure it out, dominate a huge part of the Internet. Rome has allowed that to happen. You see, because the Internet is a net. It's a web of deception. They know the truth. Many of the leadership of the Sunday Adventists know the truth, but they'll never tell the people in the church that. Because why? They'll lose their position. They'll lose their retirements. They'll lose their status. When you speak the truth, guess what happens? You end up like a guy like me. Myself. I, whatever. Where, you know what, you don't have to be friends. Because people can't stand the truth. They can't stand the truth. 
But all I say is those people who are observant of the Sabbath and kept on looking and kept on looking and kept on looking and they all come to the same conclusion. They leave the Seventh-day Adventists and all the Sabbatarians and they realize that it was based on the lunar calendar and then they start practicing their Sabbath that way. I have a heck of a lot more respect for them than I do for the people that are arguing about a Saturday or Sunday because it has no relevance in reality to what the scriptures, the people, the Hebrews, whatever, they weren't even called Jews back then. Even that was a... a, a they had to use the, the letter J until, what, three or four hundred years ago? I don't, I don't know the exact date, but let's be honest about things. We believe a lot of things that are bunk. We really do, and we will die over it. We'll abandon friendships over it. We'll uh, reject each other over lies. And I think that says something a lot more about us than it does about actual the truth, how much we actually love the truth. We love ourselves, we love our pride, and we love the fact that we think we can make a difference with our self-righteousness. Okay, now we're going to listen to this commentary about, once again, the United Nations ordering U.S. troops to war. Well, welcome to another week's analysis behind the news. We're going to talk this week about the brazen testimony by Leon Panetta before the Senate of the United States. In a hearing that was uh, held before the Senate Armed Forces Committee, both the Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Martin Dempsey, uh, said that we don't have to come to the Congress any longer to get permission to go to war, uh, that this is all being done under the United Nations. And, and Senator Sessions, to his credit, uh, tried to get these gentlemen to retract their statements uh, to make sure that it was uh, clarified what they meant. And this is what Panetta said. You know, our goal would be to seek international permission uh, as opposed to congressional. And we would come to the Congress and inform you and determine how best to approach this, whether or not we would want to get permission from the Congress. So now the Secretary of, of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the President of the United States, who has also iterated that uh, the Libyan action was a result of the United Nations Security Council, and he doesn't even need to get into the constitutional arguments uh, relative to sending American troops to war. These sorts of things are happening now, and Congress has got to step up and say, thus far and no further. This is the kind of thing that you get as a result when you uh, think in terms of, oh, I don't want to be an isolationist. You're not being an isolationist. You're being a constitutionalist. You're saying you cannot commit troops from the United States of America until you have a declaration of war by the Congress. And the implication is that there's got to be some sort of an aggressive act by a belligerent party before we declare that war. Otherwise, we're just going to be sending our men all over the world as a result of United Nations edicts. Oh, 
I'm sorry, we already are sending our troops all over the world as a result of the edicts of the Security Council. We still have people in Korea. We still have people in, in uh, NATO, in, in Europe, uh, which is a subsidiary of the United Nations. We have people in Kosovo. We have people in Macedonia. We have people, we have people, we have people, all under the edicts of the United Nations. And this is isolationism, if you oppose that. The other thing is that we're giving so much power to these people in the United Nations through this procedure that it, it, it slops over into other issues. For instance, I just saw a news magazine put out by one of the major online news sources that on one hand says, we've got to go to war against Iran. Had nice little maps and everything else. We've got to have war against them. We've got to take them out. We're going to have democracy. If you don't listen to us and do it our way, that's not democracy. We're going to bomb you. And, and everybody says, yeah, that's right, because, you know, if we don't get uh, Iran, it's going to be a problem. If we don't get Iraq, it's going to be a problem. If we don't get Afghanistan, it's going to be a problem. If we don't get Kosovo, it's going to be a problem. And yet in the same newspaper, in the same magazine that's talking about bombing Iran, it says the U.N. is trying to take control over Americans' domestic right to keep and bear arms, but they want to confiscate American firearms out of the hands of the private citizen. And they don't see the correlation between that and this other business that they're promoting through the United Nations, a perpetual war. This gives them the power to come back and get our weapons here in the United States. And we say, well, we're going to war to stop terrorism and that sort of thing. And then that argument runs out because we don't find any terrorists until we get there and then we produce terrorists by some of the things that our guys do overseas. This recent killings in Afghanistan. You can well imagine the, li the waiting lines to sign up for the terrorist organizations now as a result of acts of going out and slaughtering uh, women and children by one of our armed forces. Karzai doesn't like it. The leader of Afghanistan has ordered us out. But we're not leaving, of course, because he doesn't have anything to say about it anymore. We're there to establish democracy, which means you take orders from us. Now, you know, I may not like what my neighbor does. Does that give me the right to go over and tell him what to do? No. And I don't like what goes on in Afghanistan. I don't like what goes on in most countries around the world. But that does not give me the right to go over and bomb them and give them democracy by telling them, you, you accept my brand of democracy, which is you do what I tell you or we bomb you. It's not right. And uh, this is the problem, too, is we don't seem to understand that this is also domestic policy. Democracy in the United States means you, the government tells us what to do. Have you ever thought that one through? As long as you're doing what the government wants you to do, that's democracy. It's not, you know, where people that, that live in a neighborhood just simply want to be left alone to go about their own business. As long as I don't violate the rights of my neighbor, I can pretty much do what I want to do. Now, there's some moral issues involved there, of course, as far as my personal conduct, even behind closed doors. I understand that. But... Uh, you know, this idea that democracy means that we get to go and, and bomb the world is, is ludicrous. That's not democracy, and the people being bombed understand that. They have no choice in it. 
uh, you know, they may have no choice over their own government either. But we cannot be the gatekeepers. We cannot be the keepers of the world on what's right and what's wrong. It doesn't work because it comes back ultimately to the American people. When we create that kind of a system, there in some time in the future, they're going to come back and just tell us what to do, just like they're telling us what to do with this testimony by Panetta, whether or not we want to get permission from the Congress. If the armed forces of the United States under the current leadership, both Republican and Democrat, can do as they darn well please without the Congress, what does that tell you? To be opposed to that is isolationism. To me, it's just freedom. The people either control our own armed forces or we do not. If we do not, then we have a serious problem. Think that one through. It's not isolationism. It comes right back at, right back home to whether we have freedom or whether we don't. Whether the people are in charge through their representatives in Congress or we are not. Until next week, we'll see you then. listening to it's called unfaithful israel the, the parasitic deception isis and it's got all these guys marching in their masked faces you know the black and, and their connection to of course israel and of course in this country as well and of course in europe so we'll sit and get uh, talking here, but uh, we might as well be honest about it. And of course, John 8.4 calls the design of Ferris the sons of Satan.
movement of Zionism was created, the concept, the ideology of transforming Judaism from spirituality, a religion into a materialism, a nationalistic goal to have a piece of land, ex expressly forbidden in the Torah, because we are in exile by God. Uh, so you shouldn't have a state. You shouldn't have a country. You shouldn't have a government. We shouldn't have a state. We should be living amongst all the nations. The Jews had many sex, they have many sects among themselves. Among the famous ones are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. However, all the other sects have phased out. They cease to exist and the Pharisees have emerged as the sole rulers over the Jews in terms of political leadership, religious leadership, economic leadership. The Pharisees are the most extreme of all the Jewish sects, and they have phased out, all the other sects have phased out, and the Pharisees have emerged as the sole leadership, the only leadership, unchallenged leadership that the Jews have passed in the present. The Pharisees, who were the rulers, and still considered the rulers of the Jews, they see Jesus as their enemy, a threat for them to challenge their authority, their religious authority. So Jesus has now become their avowed enemy. When Jesus came on the scene, his reaction was to bitterly denounce this counterfeit tradition. Christ said the Pharisees, by their tradition, had made the law of God of none effect. He considered the Pharisees the most dangerous leadership Israel ever had. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Although Jewish sects such as the Sadducees now disappeared, the Pharisees emerged with even greater power over the Jewish people. The Jewish Encyclopedia describes the new role of the Pharisees. With the destruction of the temple, the Sadducees disappeared altogether, leaving the regulation of all Jewish affairs in the hands of the Pharisees. Henceforth, Jewish life was regulated by the Pharisees. The whole history of Judaism was reconstructed from the Pharisaic point of view. Pharisaism shaped the character of Judaism and the life and thought of the Jew for all of the future. In 135 AD, all Jews were expelled from Palestine. The Pharisees led most Palestinian Jews in a mass migration back to Babylon. The majority of Jews were already in Babylon and had been since the time of Nebuchadnezzar 600 years earlier. Yet around 140 AD, Babylon became the acknowledged land of refuge for world Jewry. For another thousand years, Judaism flourished in Babylon under the leadership of the Pharisees. Great academies of the rabbis were established and thousands of new laws formulated. There, those same Pharisees who killed Jesus Christ remain the undisputed rulers of Judaism. In Babylon, the Pharisees codified their oral traditions into the Babylonian Talmud, the written form of that oral tradition which Jesus so bitterly rebuked. The Talmud revealed how deep was Israel's apostasy. In her beginning, God gave the Hebrews the loftiest, the most upright literature and ethics the world has ever known. Yet when they turned their backs on him, they produced the Talmud, a work which has aptly been called a monument to human folly. The Talmud also helps us understand the basis for Christ's unflattering descriptions of the Pharisees. Jesus described the Pharisees as hypocrites,
children of hell, blind guides, whited sepulchers, full of dead men's bones. He even described the Pharisees as children of their father, the devil, a murderer from the beginning. The Talmud confirms Christ's word. In the Talmud, in Treatise Sanhedrin, an extensive passage describes the right of the Pharisee to kill anyone, just as long as he did so indirectly. As one of dozens of examples, the Talmud tells us that if one bound his neighbor and he died of starvation, he is not liable to execution. In such an indirect manner, the Pharisees also killed Christ. Manipulating the Romans to actually wield the spear and sword, the Pharisees claimed, as their descendants do today, that since the Romans were the direct cause of the death of Christ, it is the Romans, not the Jews, who are guilty. You tell the story about how you try to find out what the what they call the Mossad when they deal with uh, publicly? That was a reasonable question, but the trouble is uh, you can't pick up the phone book. There's no uh, language in, uh, in Israel that you can look up you know, CIA, or in our case, uh, the Mossad. We thought we should ask, what shall we call it in English? You can translate the Hebrew words, as I said, Mossad is institute. But when they write a letter to their friends in the CIA or the British intelligence, what do they call themselves? It took a while. Uh, it was a matter of asking the prime minister's spokesman. The best you could do, because officially... Uh, the Mossad is under the Prime Minister's office. And uh, I think he sort of wondered why you want to know and all that, so we explained. And he came up with uh, the Israeli Secret Intelligence Service. And if it were to have initials, it would be ISIS. Just simple words like that. Interestingly enough, though, kind of a British model. The British don't really like the names MI5 and MI6 for their foreign Enough explosives for every truck to do great damage 
George Washington Bridge, but they arrested the two suspects and they're questioning as we speak. It was widely reported that men had been celebrating the attack after recording the first plane strike. They were not al-Qaeda, but they were detained. I wear my binoculars and I could see the towers from my window. And this is where I, you know, I'm looking. And all of a sudden, down there, I see this van parked. And I see three guys on top of the van. And I could see that they were, like, happy. You know, they, 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 were, they didn't look shocked to me. You know, they didn't look shocked. I thought it was very strange. We had received an all-points bulletin, and uh, I just happened to see the van, you know, hollered over my lieutenant. You know, I think that could be the van. We checked it out, and it was. You know, we were all on edge, obviously, so I really wasn't looking to make friends with these people, and neither were the officers that I were with. Once we started talking to them, you know, they were pretty much like, hey, you know, we're, you know, we're not against you, we're with you. Asked this week about another sprawling investigation and the detention of 60 Israelis since September 11th, the Bush administration treated the questions like hot potatoes. I would just refer you to the Department of Justice with it. I'm not familiar with the report. I'm aware that uh, some Israeli citizens have been detained. With respect to why they are being retained, detained and the other aspects of, of your question, whether it's because they are in intelligence services or what they were doing, I will uh, defer to the Department of Justice and the FBI to answer that. A highly placed investigator said there are, quote, tie-ins, but when asked for details, he flatly refused to describe them, saying, quote, evidence linking these Israelis to 911 is classified. I cannot tell you about evidence that has been gathered. It's classified information. Numerous classified documents obtained by Fox News indicate that even prior to September 11th, as many as 140 other Israelis had been detained or arrested in a secretive and sprawling investigation into suspected espionage by Israelis in the United States. Here's how the system works. Most directory assistance calls and virtually all call records and billing in the U.S. are done for the phone companies by Andocs Limited, an Israeli-based private telecommunications company. Andocs has contracts with the 25 biggest phone companies in America and more worldwide. The White House and other secure government phone lines are protected but it is virtually impossible to make a call on normal phones without generating an Amdocs record of it. Carl Cameron reported U.S. investigators digging into the 9-11 terrorist attacks that the suspects may have been tipped off for what they were doing by information leaking out of Amdocs. In tonight's report, we learned that the concern about phone security extends to another company founded in Israel that provides the technology that the U.S. government uses for electronic eavesdropping. Here is Carl Cameron's third report. The company is Converse Infosys, a subsidiary of an Israeli-run private telecommunications firm with offices throughout the U.S. It provides wiretapping equipment for law enforcement. Converse insists the equipment it installs is secure, but the complaint about this system is that the wiretap computer programs made by Converse have, in effect, a back door through which wiretaps themselves can be intercepted by unauthorized parties. Adding to the suspicions is the fact that in Israel, Converse works closely with the Israeli government and under special programs gets reimbursed for up to 50% of its research and development costs by the Israeli Ministry of Industry and Trade. But investigators within the DEA, INS, and FBI have all told Fox News that to pursue or even suggest Israeli spying through Converse is considered career suicide. 
But investigators within the DEA, INS, and FBI have all told Fox News that to pursue or even suggest Israeli spying through Congress is considered career suicide. The men who were detained due to the report they were taping the first plane crash and then celebrating and joking about it actually went on television and admitted it was their job to record the attack. And at that point, we were taken for another round of questioning, this time related to our allegedly being members of Mossad. The fact of the matter is, we are coming from a country that experiences terror daily. Our purpose was to document the event. How could they have known about the attack? And who sent them to document it? The evidence points to a large intelligence network inside the United States that had teams on the ground, such as the ones recording the attack, and electronic surveillance teams gathering information. So what can we make of all this? For big picture analysis, we also turn to former CIA operative and chief of the Bin Laden unit, Michael Shore. Michael, it's always a pleasure. Uh, welcome back to Freedom Watch. Thank you, Judge. Um, so let me ask you this. Who would want to create the impression that we need to engage in military activity, which a lot of the neocons demanded be before the ink was even dry on this criminal complaint against Iran? Oh, the only people that would benefit from that would be the Israelis and the Saudis. And I think if I was looking at a counterintelligence uh, operation to decide where this information come, came from, I'd be very interested to see if I could find an Israeli hand or a Saudi hand. Because in the long run, Judge, both Israel and Saudi Arabia are much more dangerous enemies to the United States than the Iranians are. The Iranians are a third-rate uh, military power that we could handle very easily. But, you know, the, the Congress is crazy for war with Iran. Listen to Senator Graham and Senator McCain and Joe Lieberman. Um, they're owned by the Israelis. The Saudis are very influential. So when you look at these kind of things, you have to ask, who would benefit from the war? The Israelis and the Saudis would love to see our money and our young men and women being killed to fight their enemies in Iran. Are you wait, wait. What's happening in the world? Israel is fighting alongside ISIS. Israel, America's greatest ally in the Middle East. Israel, which receives over a billion dollars in U.S. foreign aid, is fighting alongside ISIS to get rid of Assad. I know that's a very incredible claim to make, but just look at the facts. Israel has bombed Syria for the fifth time in 18 months. The Times of Israel is reporting that Israel is giving arms to these Syrian rebels. Harat is talking about how there was a deal made with the Syrian rebels um, and uh, the Israeli government to get rid of the Golem Heights area. And if Israel helps uh, the rebels get rid of Assad, that the Golem Heights area would be all uh, of Israel to keep. The CFR is talking about how Israel is giving medical treatment to Syrian rebels. There's a picture of President Netanyahu of Israel being in an Israeli hospital treating a Syrian Islamic terrorist, a Syrian rebel. In fact, ISIS militants are getting medical attention in the Golan Heights and in Israel itself. What does that tell you? There is absolute continuity, but the actual well, policy, no, just like the Project for a New American Century laid out very clearly, that a, quote, new Pearl Harbor would be necessary yeah. to achieve this goal of full-spectrum dominance, you could never tell the American people or the world, for that matter, we're going to fight wars of aggression where we're going to have to invade and But I am not going to be party, ever, of any group who seeks 
to liberate themselves from oppression and take weapons and arms from Saudi Arabia and from Qatar and from Turkey. A large number of those who are now fighting Assad in Syria are paid by the Saudis and the Qataris and are trained and have been given arms to go and invade another country. May Allah grant the day will come when Saudi Arabia will be invaded the same way. Hmm? Qatar and Saudi Arabia are Zionist countries. Oh yes. Allah says in the Quran, وَمَنْ يَتَوَلَّهُمْ مِنْكُمْ فَإِنَّهُمْ مِنْهُمْ If you turn to them with friendship and alliance, you belong to them, says Allah. If they are in Syria, those who are not connected whatsoever with the Saudis and with Qatar and with Turkey and with the Zionists. Okay? Where are you getting your weapons? Oh, we're taking it from the Syrian army. <laughs> Very convenient answer. Very convenient answer. Hmm? Even if you have your own weapons, you do not launch your struggle at this time to liberate yourself. This is the wrong time. Because you're going to be used as guinea pigs. Whatever success you achieve will be beneficial to them. So you're acting very foolishly, very foolishly to use this moment, the second Arab Spring, to get rid of Qatar. Choose a different time, not a time when Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the Zionists Ascending men into Turkey, armed with weapons and financed by them and trained by them. Choose another time, not this time. Okay? So I know about oppression. It's not just in Syria, of course. There's more oppression in Saudi Arabia. How many of them going to Saudi Arabia to liberate Saudi Arabia? There's a certain inconsistency. I'm very worried about getting involved in a new war in Syria. And people say, well, Assad is such a bad guy. He is. But on the other side, we have Al-Qaeda and Al-Nusra. And then they say there are some pro-Western people, and they say, oh, we're going, to, we're going to vet them. Well, apparently, we've got a senator over there had a picture taken with some kidnappers, so I don't know how good a job we're going to do vetting those who are going to get the arms. So there's two ironies you have to overcome if you want to get involved in the war in Syria. The first irony is you will be allied with Al-Qaeda, the second irony is most of the Christians are on the other side. So you may be arming Islamic rebels who may well be killing Christians. But we are where we are because we, we are where we are because we armed the Syrian rebels. We have been fighting alongside Al Qaeda, fighting alongside ISIS. ISIS is now emboldened in two countries. But here's the anomaly. We're with ISIS in Syria. We're on the same side of the war. So those who want to get involved to stop ISIS in Iraq are allied with ISIS in Syria. That is the, the real contradiction to this whole policy. Right, and many of you. And again, remember the occult significance of the word ISIS. It's an Egyptian goddess, deity, that is a favorite of the occult mysteries and secret societies that run this planet. Uh, so it's no coincidence here, this terrorist so-called extremist group called ISIS. And what do we have here? Is it also merely a coincidence, merely coincidental, that there's a contractor, U.S. government, called ISIS. Yes, how coincidence, I'm sure. 
ISIS provides worldwide security, intelligence, technology, and training to government and private enterprises. Our Washington, D.C. office is located in Ronald Reagan Building. We are dedicated to supporting our national defense and security departments, as well as government contractors and private business, with mission and critical services performed by highly skilled experts in their fields. Interesting. U.S. Armed Forces, U.S. Government, and prime contractors on the ground in such strategic environments as the Middle East. Uh, see our locations map at the bottom. Multinational Forces, Iraq, theater-wide security services. Interesting choice word. Theater-wide Department of Defense, DOD. Anything else in Iraq? Sure. Iraqi Voting Legislature, Personal Protective Services, Iraq Coalition for Peace. Client, contract, supported organization. As you can see, now you know who is really ISIS, who is really... That ISIS, just like Al-Qaeda, was created by the CIA. They trained them in Jordan, backed and funded by Saudi Arabia and Israel. Just showed you the other day how Israel struck nine key spots in Syria, and who was there to take over on the ground? ISIS. That was 100% proof they're working together in this, and they're going to lie right to your face, in the media. I've, I've shown you solid proof. They tried to bait Iran into this. Iran said, no, I don't think so. You're ISIS. Went back to their country, put their troops on the border, and started sending heavy artillery across. They've been flying drones, sending 140 tons of military equipment per day. And at the same time, ISIS holds a parade with all of the captured U.S. military vehicles as far as the eye can see. And guess what? Obama wants to send them 500 million more. And that's the truth. The local population here in the town of Dilad has been mobilized. Soldiers were coming to pick up food from this mosque. A fighter from a smaller Shia militia had, like many of them, spent years in American prisons in Iraq for fighting the Western occupation. God willing. ISIS is a Jewish-Israeli movement established by a dirty hand to destroy Iraq. Uh, does it not make you a bit uncomfortable that the Christian right here in America, which backs Israel fervently, really does so because they think Jesus is going to return? Many of them believe he will do so in their lifetime. And when Jesus returns, he must return to whence he came. 
And what he's going to do when he gets there, basically, is convert all the Jews or kill them. Well, you know, let's argue about that point when it happens, right? But uh, <laughs> the only plan likely to bring tranquility, freedom, and justice to the region. The one-state solution in which the entire Middle East is given to the Jews. That's right. The one-state solution is a proposal of genius that would not only help the Palestinians, but would instantly achieve the noblest goals of the so-called Arab Spring. For instance, turning the entire Middle East into one big Israel will secure religious freedom for everyone in the area. Indeed, once the entire Middle East becomes Israel, most of the region's Arabs will be freer and better off in every way than they've ever been before. General Wesley Clark, you probably remember him, he had a very famous interview on Democracy Now! where he said that post the staged terror attacks of September 11, 2001, he had a memo allegedly from then Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, that said that the United States federal government would be launching an aggressive invasion and attack of countries in the Middle East. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you gotta come in, you got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, you, we've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq. Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to Al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if... If the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. Look, ISIS got started through funding from our friends and allies. This got started through funding from our friends and allies. This is a valedictorian, a Rhodes Scholar. I believe he went to West Point saying it's a U.S. and her allies that created ISIS, ISIL, the Israeli Secret Intelligence Service, out of thin air as a smokescreen so we can go and fight these wars that the general didn't even understand post-September 11, 2001. will take up my name in vain and mislead many, and they will follow the ways of the Pharisees and not the true path of the, of the pure oblation. And that's something, remember the message I just gave? Now, I didn't know this was there. Just gave a message to you guys recently about the traditions of the Pharisees. I said even even Rabbi uh, Singer says that the, the Orthodox Jews of today are the Pharisees of 2,000 years ago. And I said, if you will not stand with Israel and the Jews, then I will not stand with you. Jewish people as a whole did not reject Jesus as Messiah. It will also prove that Jesus did not come to earth to be the Messiah. 
Since Jesus refused by word and deed to claim to be the Messiah, how can the Jews be blamed for rejecting what was never offered? Read it. The Orthodox Jews of today are the Pharisees of 2,000 years ago, and I said they are blind. Yeshua says in the Gospels of the King James that they are blind readers of the blind. And so if you want to go back into Pharisaic traditions as Jews that are believing the Messiah to be Messiah, and you take back up these traditions, you will perish in your sins. There's no way around it. And he says right here, her hands dripping with the innocent blood of creatures will take up my name in vain and, and mislead many, and they will follow the ways of the Pharisees and not the true path of the pure oblation. You know, I think I had a question to ask to me not long ago. You know, I said, Brother Steve, what do you think about uh, this? You know, would they restart the sacrificial services? They may. But let me tell you something. That's not what God's interested in. Yeshua has died for us. And believe me, God would put a stop to it because his blood is what was poured out for our sins. And we must believe in him. And if you believe in Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Christ, you will be pardoned from your sins. If you do not, you will not be pardoned. I don't care how many Pharisaic traditions you want to take up. You know, do you know God? You've got to believe Yeshua the way Yeshua was, not the way you think he is, not the way you want him to be, not the way the church has made him to be. You've got to know who he is. And you've got to believe him in the power that he came in, in the power of the resurrection. <laughs> Pretty powerful statement and message for me, at least. I don't know for anybody else. <laughs> oh, folks, it was like you about everything. Anyways, I'm looking at this. I don't know if you've ever seen these nickels out there. I got this nickel for America, and it's uh, United States of America. And there we go. You got the Freemason handshake in the back of it. Of course, we know that the Jesuits control Freemasonry. And apparently also control the Pharisees. All right. Um, where do we go from here? ISIS, Mossad exposed Arabic Masonic Zionists versus the Muslim and Christians. Um, you could do that. Very graphic video, by the way. You want to see true beheadings. Makes you wonder if, you know, a lot of these, these fake ones that are out there on the Internet, if they are some, like, like well, of course, they're psychos, but I wonder if one of the reasons why they're doing that is to try to uh, convince folks that um, not really happening. And then you got other folks out there, too. It's quite a tragic attitude to have, but... I understand where they're coming from, but you know they say, uh, you know, these uh, Christians that are dying are not true Christians, but they're Catholics, and, uh, etc. But you know, the more you think about that, and if you think about that with some compassion and with uh, 
Spirit of Christ in it, in, in mind. You don't know if any of those people are one of his children, that they could have been saved. They might have come out, just like you did and I did. And, you know, not to mention that, to assume that, that's like saying that, you know, because America is basically a Roman Catholic country, or quote-unquote Protestant country, that, oh, we don't need to worry about that. But you know what? There's remnants everywhere. I'm sure it's in Syria. I'm sure it's in Lebanon. I'm sure there's even a few in Israel still. In Iraq and everything else, we should care about these people regardless. What's going on is just flat out wicked and evil. And nobody deserves it. What's going on? Now, if you see that this is recompense or judgment, God's allowing it to happen. And of course, He's allowing it to happen. And I guess in the end of the day, there's some truth in that statement. Oh, well, that's. <laughs> Our job is not to do the judging on them. It's God's job. We should be there. Interesting, if it is true, I discovered that the fastest uh, countries, two countries where Christianity is growing, turns out to be Iran and Iraq. Or is it Afghanistan? But the number one is Iran. Who's the number one uh, missionaries going over there? They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Turns out to be Palestinians, not Americans. Not United States of America. It's Palestinians. The same group of people that are systematically being exterminated, a genocide's going on, just like what we did in this country to the Native Americans. We've really lost our perspective and things, haven't we? We really have. Anyways, uh, you know, I think what I'll go in is to go into the big lie because that's a little uh, softer message. And, and if anybody's, eh, you know, if, I'm sure people will leave because of the time. And then maybe if I still have time, I'll play the other ones. Um, anyways, this uh, goes along with the uh, conversation last night. And um, I think this guy did a pretty good job of kind of explaining. And now we're talking about the New World Order. And it's coming from the Jesuits, coming from Rome. And we realize that everything's a lie that comes from them, except the part about death and torture and murder and uh, and corruption. So let's find out more about this whole thing about what this the place that we live on, what it might actually look like. I like his perspective. He's in the same boat as I am. He's one of those guys that says, I don't know. I think that's a good place to be. Hello, this is Dave. Today I want to talk about what I consider to be the biggest lie of all. It's a subject I've been well looking at for the last six months, and I've been pretty hesitant to uh, talk about it because, well... It's a really controversial subject. Now, I stumbled across this completely by accident. I was researching something on a totally unrelated topic and happened to see an intriguing sounding video. So I clicked on it, 
about a subject that was so preposterous that I was just about to turn it off, when it happened to say something that piqued my interest. So I watched the video completely to the end. And by the end of it, I had questions. I had some serious questions. So I'm going to ask you to be open-minded about this. This is very, very uh, controversial and, and difficult to get your head around. So just bear with this and keep an open mind. So in order to determine the truth, I'm going to be using a few principles here. The first of which is the scientific method, something that the scientific community doesn't seem to use these days. But the scientific method is where a theory or opinion is put forward that matches what we observe. But if something comes along that contradicts those observations, then the theory must be discarded. The second principle is Occam's razor. That's quite simply, the simplest explanation tends to be the truth. The third principle I'm going to be using is from Sherlock Holmes. When the impossible has been eliminated, whatever is left, however improbable, must be the truth. I'm also going to have to accept a couple of things. The first of which is what I call the ant's perspective. If you imagine an ant walking across a runway and all of a sudden a jumbo jet lands next to it, the ant's probably going to say, what the hell was that? But there is no way that the ant can ever figure out what just happened to it. It's just beyond the ant's ability to comprehend. So we have to accept that they, there may be things that are way beyond the human mind's ability to comprehend. The other thing we have to accept is how easily our minds, once they've been programmed or given a world view, how easily those minds can be fooled.
stuff. Point is, you can't automatically trust any two-dimensional imagery or media that's presented to you by the establishment. So let's get down to it then, shall we? This is apparently the truth of our world. We live on a spherical planet called Earth, spinning at 1,000 miles an hour on a 23.4 degree tilt. Now, I always thought it was 23.5 degrees, but as I researched into this, I found it was actually 23.4. That's 23.4 degrees away from vertical. Funnily enough, that leaves 66.6 degrees away from the horizontal. Hmm, interesting. So anyway, we're orbiting an ordinary star that is uh, apparently 93 million miles away. The sun itself is embedded in a galaxy of 100 billion stars, and that galaxy is one of trillions and trillions. I just want to go over that again. So the tilt is supposed to be at 23.4 degrees. The opposite of that, and we're talking about a 90-degree angle, it's 66.6. Even that has the 666 in it. And we know that represents the Latin man. It represents the Roman Catholic hierarchy. It represents Rome. It represents Satan. All right? What are the odds of that, folks? What are the odds of that? Something to think about. And an infinite and expanding void. And in the midst of that void, we are just an insignificant and unimportant microbe that's arrived here by accident that's crawling around on this speck of dust. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh dear, he's turned into one of those flat earther people. But if you've ever discovered the truth behind all those things that have been labelled as conspiracy theories, you've been willing to set aside your preconceptions of the world to be able to accept a new and uh, often terrifying version. This is no different. So please bear with me. The first thing that people will automatically say is, of course we live on a spherical Earth. We've got the photographic evidence, don't we? Well, strangely enough, when you try and search for a picture of Earth from space, you'll find surprisingly few of them. In fact, all of them, including this one, this is from NASA, it's called the Big Blue Marble. All of them are composites. <laughs> NASA will freely admit to them being composite images or CGI or Photoshop. There's only one image that NASA will claim was shot from space, and it's this one. It's apparently shot from Apollo 17. But all of these images have problems. First of all, the scientist will tell you that because the Earth is spinning, centrifugal forces will force the equator to bulge out as it's spinning. So the Earth is more of an oblate spheroid. But, funnily enough, all the images from space, supposedly, are perfect spheres. Also, one thing I noticed is that 
the colors of uh, continents and, uh, and the sea itself. They're very vivid. Now, when you look at anything at a distance, maybe if you look at some hills at the distance of for three or four miles, you'll see that the colors are kind of washed out somewhat because of the atmosphere. If you see mountains further off in the distance, the dark colors are washed out even more because of the influence of the atmosphere. So how can it be that you get these very vivid, striking colors through miles of atmosphere? I can't explain it. The other strange thing about uh, this supposed shot of uh, Earth from space is that the continents actually appear to match the Mercator map rather than the Peter's projection map. Now, if you don't know the difference, here's a little video to explain it. Should we begin? Yes. Plain and simple, uh, we'd like President Bartlett to aggressively support legislation that would make it mandatory for every public school in America to teach geography using the Peter's projection map instead of the traditional Mercator. Give me 200 bucks and it's done. Really? No. Why are we changing maps? Uh, because, CJ, the Mercator projection has fostered European imperialist attitudes for centuries and created an ethnic bias against the third world. Really? The German cartographer, Mercator, originally designed this map in 1569 as a navigational tool for European sailors. The map enlarges areas at the poles to create straight lines of constant bearing or geographic direction. So it makes it easier to cross an ocean. But yes. it distorts the relative size of nations and continents. Are you saying the map is wrong? Oh, dear, yes. Uh, look at Greenland. Okay. Now look at Africa. Okay. The two land masses appear to be roughly the same size. Yes. Would it blow your mind if I told you that Africa is, in reality, 14 times larger? Yes. Here we have Europe drawn considerably larger than South America. When it's 6.9 million square miles, South America is almost double the size of Europe's 3.8 million. Alaska appears three times as large as Mexico, when Mexico is larger by 0.1 million square miles. Germany appears in the middle of the map when it's in the northernmost quarter of the Earth. Anyway, relative size is one thing, but you're telling me that Germany isn't where we think it is? Nothing's where you think it is. Where is it? I'm glad you asked. The Peters Projection. It has fidelity of axis. Fidelity of position. East-west lines are parallel and intersect north-south axes at right angles. What the hell is that? It's where you've been living this whole time. Should we continue? Uh-huh. Oh, you're probably wondering what all this has to do with social equality. No, I'm wondering where France really is. Guys, we want to thank you very much for coming in. Hang on, we're going to finish this. Okay. What do maps have to do with social equality, you ask? She asked. Salvatore Natoli of the National Council for Social Studies argues, in our society, we unconsciously equate size with importance and even power. I'm going to check in on time. Go. You guys find bring it in on that map. You'll call me, right? Probably not. Okay. When third world countries are misrepresented, they're likely to be valued less. When Mercator maps exaggerate the importance of Western civilization, when the top of the map is given to the northern hemisphere and the bottom is given to the southern, 
then people will tend to adopt top and bottom attitudes. But wait, how? Where else could you put the northern hemisphere but on the top? On the bottom. How? Like this. Yeah, but you can't do that. Why not? Because it's freaking me out. So the Mercator map was designed as a navigational aid, but the Peters projection map is a more accurate rendering of what the continents look like. So why then do all the images of Earth from space show the Mercator map? I guess that's because that's what we're used to. Even the one image that is claimed to be a, an actual photograph of Earth from space is called into question, simply because of a, a film that was uh, released accidentally by NASA of Apollo 11 faking the very first picture of Earth from space. So let's have a look at that video. An old reel received by mistake. It contains the raw or unedited footage of the crew of Apollo 11, Michael Collins, Edwin Aldrin Jr. and Neil Armstrong, staging part of their mission for nearly an hour in living color with exceptionally clear behind-the-scenes audio of conversations discussing the techniques used to achieve a disingenuous picture depicting the Earth at a distance in order to falsely demonstrate their far journey from it and their ability to survive passing through the Van Allen radiation belts. It cannot be misconstrued that this staging was done for some other reason, for the reel itself is slated and dated July 18th, 19th, and 20th, 1969, the very days of the mission when they were said to be approaching and achieving lunar orbit. Understand, too, that only about 20 seconds of this raw footage was ever broadcast to the public, and these conversations discussing their deception were believed to be private until now. Here they discussed that these television transmissions were in fact not broadcast live as everyone believed. They were first screened and edited for playback later. All right, Janine, we just wanted a narrative such a weekend when we get the playback we can sort of correlate what we're so much. Here they discussed the fact that they have turned out the lights and have blocked out sunlight from entering the spacecraft through the other windows as to not cause any reflected light to fall onto the spacecraft's wall in the foreground. Okay, very good. Well, we shut out the sun coming in from the other of the spacecraft, so uh, it's looking through a, uh, a number one window and there isn't any uh, reflected light. The reason this was done is so that the truth of the matter would not be revealed. It is this. Though the federal government would have you believe that this is a view of Earth from a distance out of the spacecraft's window as it nears the moon, it is not. What they have ingeniously done is placed the camera at the back of the spacecraft and centered the lens on a circular window in the foreground, outside of which it is completely filled with the Earth in low orbit. The circumference of the window then appears to be the diameter of the Earth at a distance, with the darkened walls of the spacecraft appearing to be the blackness of space around it. That is why they wanted the interior dark and blocked out the sun from any other windows. Here you can see the extruded window, probably two inches thick at the bottom. This is because the Earth shines coming in at a downward angle. It also causes the Earth to appear to be an irregularly shaped circle, 
for you are seeing the outside of the window at the bottom and the inside of the window at the top, which together form two different sized halves of a circle. Subsequently, this tape was never used. As they perfected the shot, a crescent-shaped piece of black material was inset slightly into the window to create the illusion of the Earth's terminator line dividing night and day. It is uncannily convincing. During this segment, intended to be edited and played back later for the worldwide television audience, dated July 18, 1969, Neil Armstrong condemns himself as he states that he is 130,000 miles out, or halfway to the moon, as the NASA flight log also states on this date, when he is in reality in low Earth orbit of a few hundred miles. Here, during another segment, also intended to air after review, Neil Armstrong falsely explains to the viewer how the shot is attained by putting the camera's lens to the window's glass, as it would have to be if they were the claimed distance away from the Earth. And we only have one uh, window that uh, has a view of the Earth, and it's filled up with the TV camera. If the window was completely filled up with a TV camera, as he stated, then an astronaut's arm would not be able to get between the camera and the window, as it obviously does here in this outtake. South America becomes invisible beyond the Terminator or inside the shadow. You can also notice how the astronaut operating the camera reacted to the mistake by attempting to pan away from it. This is a segment that they believed wasn't even being recorded, much less suitable for broadcast, for the lens was being zoomed out and the scene was being changed to that of an interior of the astronauts at work and apparently the stop button popped back up on the recorder without notice. Here is the diffused work light that they used to see camera controls, but not throw light onto the spacecraft's wall. Here they remove part of the crescent insert. Finally, the iris is opened up to see the real location of the camera and the very bright and near Earth out the window. Here is the slate for the 19th of July, and the same shot of trickery on the 19th of July, and then the 20th, and the same misleading shot on the 20th. Later that evening, they were said to be walking on the moon. How can this be when they were in Earth orbit only nine hours earlier? And the moon is from three days' journey. And you can see the full sequence on a documentary called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon. That's uh, one that I highly recommend you have a look at. But as for photographic evidence of a globe Earth, <coughs> nope, it doesn't exist. Now let's take a look at uh, Earth's supposed curvature. Many people point to Felix Baumgartner's recent record-breaking freefall jump and point to this picture in particular. It clearly shows a curvature of the Earth. But let's take a closer look at it. Well, it's quite obvious that a fisheye lens is used here. If you look at the uh, shape 
of the capsule itself. Those are usually built with fairly straight lines, and you can see the lines are very curved on the edge of this capsule. It took off from New Mexico, and the surface of the Earth looks like, well, it's one big, large landmass, and that's uh, New Mexico. I didn't realize that New Mexico took up so much of the Earth. It's clearly a fisheye lens. We know intuitively, if we stand on a beach with a panoramic view, that the sea is flat. It's flat at sea level. It's flat from the top of Mount Everest. It's flat from over 20 miles high. I got this image from another YouTuber. I can't remember the guy's name, but um, he's the one who goes, where is the curvature? Where? Where? <laughs> um, but it's a picture of uh, the New York City skyline from over 40 miles away. He says it's 60 miles away, but I measured it on Google Earth. It's 40 miles away. The reason I added this one is because I used to live um, halfway between Bear Mountain and uh, New York City. And um, from North Route 17, I was clearly able to see the New York City skyline from um, about 20 miles away. From 40 miles away, the New York City skyline should have been about 1,000 feet below the horizon. And that neatly leads me into the horizon problem. No matter where you are above the surface of the Earth, the horizon always rises to your eye level. It doesn't matter if you're standing on a beach or up a hill or in a plane at 35,000 feet. The horizon is always at eye level. Well, that would be impossible on a spherical Earth because the Earth would curve away from you, and so it would always appear below you. As on this diagram, the expected horizon would be below you, but that's not what you see. When you look out of the plane window, you always see the horizon at eye level. And it doesn't matter how big you make the Earth below the plane, the horizon would always appear below you. In 240 BC, a Jesuit named Eratosthenes, uh, my apologies to any ancient Greeks among you, he calculated the Earth's circumference. He did that by planting a stick in the ground at midday so that uh, the sunlight being directly overhead would cast no shadow. Simultaneously, about 400 miles away, somebody else planted the, the stick in the same way and found that the sunlight cast a shadow. So by taking a shadow length and knowing the distance between the sticks, you could theoretically work out the circumference of the Earth. Take note that this method requires that the sun be a long, long way away so that the light coming from the sun is all parallel. Just uh, keep that in the back of your mind because we'll come back to this later. However, it turns out that you'd get exactly the same results on a flat Earth if the sun were only 3,100 miles away and 34 miles across. Now, as crazy as that might sound, I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to this as well. Perhaps the most famous experiment to disprove the idea of a curvature was performed by Samuel Rowbottom in the late 1800s. The old Bedford Levels experiment was performed on a canal in Cambridgeshire which is perfectly straight for six miles. What Robotham did was put a telescope six inches above the water at one end of the canal 
and had a friend row a boat to the other. The boat had a flag on it, and Rowbottom was able to see the boat and the flag along the entire length of the journey. Now, if the earth were curved, the boat should have been 16 feet below the horizon at the other end of the canal. Plenty of other such proofs exist concerning landmarks that can be seen much further away than the curvature of the earth would allow. The most notable would be the Notre Dame Antwerp Spire, which stands about 403 feet high and 468 feet above sea level. But sea captains are able to see the spire with a telescope from an amazing 241 kilometers away. If the Earth were a globe, then the spire would be actually a whole mile below the horizon. The Earth has a curvature? <laughs> I don't think so. So let's take a look now at the idea that the Earth is spinning. Our common sense intuition tells us that the Earth is motionless. We have senses that detect changes in velocity. Why is it then, if you've, say, always lived in England, where the velocity of the Earth there is something around, I think it's 700 miles an hour, and you get on a plane and fly down to the equator where it's actually spinning at over 1,000 miles an hour, why is it that you don't feel dizzy and... Um, and notice the change in velocity. Well, we'll ignore that. There are many theories that supposedly show that the Earth is spinning. But I want to concentrate on one such theory, which is that the motion of the stars prove that the Earth is spinning. And this theory proposes that the stars are static, fixed and unchanging, and it's the Earth that's spinning around at 1,000 miles an hour, and that the axis of spin is pointing at a particular star called Polaris, the pole star. So from an observer on the Earth, it appears that the stars are spinning around the star Polaris. Now, Polaris is something like two quadrillion miles away, and as far as we know, the polar axis has always pointed at Polaris. So, the first obvious question is, if the Earth is wobbling on its axis and moving around the Sun and also being dragged along with the rest of the solar system, how can it remain perfectly aligned with a star that's two quadrillion miles away? Well, we'll put that aside for the moment and just concentrate on the motion of the stars. If you were to set up a camera pointing at Polaris in the night sky and leave it on a long exposure, you'd get a pattern of star trails around Polaris, supposedly reflecting the 1,000-mile-an-hour spin of the Earth. But wait a minute. Isn't the Earth orbiting the Sun at 67,000 miles an hour? And come to think of it, isn't the Sun moving through the galaxy at 600,000 miles an hour? Hmm then why is it the only motion we see is the slowest one when the orbit around the sun is 67 times faster than the supposed spin of the Earth and the motion of the sun dragging the solar system behind it is 600 times faster than the spinning of the Earth. Something doesn't add up. The point is you wouldn't see these perfectly circular star trails. If you took into account all the other relative motions, 
you just wouldn't see these perfect circles. Where is emotion? Where? Where? The simplest answer is the earth isn't spinning or orbiting or being dragged. The earth is fixed and it's the stars that are moving. So now let's turn our attention to the sun. What do you think is wrong with this picture? Any idea? Well, take a look at the angle of the rays. If the sun was 93 million miles away, as I show in this diagram, uh, well, actually, I can't really show 93 million miles to scale here because uh, if it was, the Earth would be probably in the next town. Point is that at that kind of distance, all the light rays from the sun would be parallel near enough. And if you recall, Eratosthenes' calculation of the circumference of the Earth actually depends on the light being parallel from the sun. So when the light shines through broken cloud, it would hit the ground parallel rather than at this kind of angle. So if you're able to measure the angle of the sun rays, you can basically, with a bit of simple geometry, figure out exactly how high the sun is. And that turns out to be about 3,100 miles. And if you were going to try and hide this information that the sun is actually very close, perhaps you'd uh, encode it in symbol. Does this look familiar? There are quite a few videos like this one where people send up their video cameras on weather balloons. One thing to note is when you can see a hot spot on the clouds directly under the sun, like here. See it? Directly under the sun is a hot spot. Now, that would be impossible if the sun was 93 million miles away. But also note how the sun appears to move with the earth. As the camera rocks about, you see the sun moving around with the earth. Now again, if the sun was 93 million miles away, you wouldn't see that. Just like if you were on a speeding train, the trees next to the track will whiz past you. But the mountains in the distance would, well, they'd hardly move. And if the sun was behind those mountains, the sun wouldn't move at all. So just like in this diagram, you can see there's a sun a long, long way off and a sun that's directly above the kind of landscape. And as the camera is simulated to move here, you can see that the closer sun is moving with the, the simulated Earth here. But the one further away moves as if it was further away. You can see it hardly moves in relation to the Earth. Again, that's not what we see in these videos. The sun appears to be directly above the flat Earth. In the flat Earth model, the sun rotates around us and only appears to rise and set because of the way our vision works. We see in perspective that is, the horizon is at our eye level. And as things recede from us, they tend to converge to the center of that horizon line 
to a place that's known as the vanishing point. Just as if you were standing at the end of a very long corridor, you would see that the walls would appear to converge. The floor would appear to rise up to meet the horizon. And the ceiling would also appear to move downwards. Of course, the walls and, and the ceiling are all parallel to each other, so they don't actually move anywhere, but it would just appear that way. And anything that lies beyond the vanishing point is effectively invisible to us. It's beyond the limit of our vision. The clouds in this picture are all at the same height, but the further they are away from you, the lower down in the sky they appear to be. And similarly, the further away the cloud shadows are on the ground, the higher up they appear to be. Now, try and watch the following video without the preconception that the sun rises and sets, but rather moves closer to you and then moves further away. I'm afraid I can no longer take the idea that the sun is 93 million miles away very seriously at all. So now let's turn our attention to the moon. Many of us have seen the moon appear full at various times throughout the day, as in this picture. But how can that happen? If you're standing at point C, then it's the middle of the night. Full moon, no problem. And if you're standing at point A, it's early in the morning, certainly if you stare back at the moon in the night sky, then yes, you can see a full moon. But if you're standing at point B, which is midday, that is the sun is directly overhead, then there isn't anywhere that the moon can be that will allow you to see it as full. Because the sun will be illuminating the side of the moon that is facing away from you. So the best you'll be able to see is a sliver of the moon. Think about it next time you see the full moon during the day. Every month, the moon goes through eight distinct phases. Always the same eight, always the same order. Supposedly because of a relationship between the position of the moon relative to the position of the Earth and the Sun. So let's say it's December. And throughout the month, we see the normal eight phases of the moon. But what happens when it's June and the Earth is uh, supposedly on the other side of the sun? Shouldn't these phases be reversed? That's not what we see. We see the same eight phases in the same order. We are told that the moon is also spherical. But when we look at the moon, it seems to be lit uniformly over its entire surface. But if it was a sphere reflecting the sun, then that curved surface would display a highlight, and then that light would drop off as it went round the surface. But that's not what we see. The entire moon is lit uniformly. The quality of the light from the moon is completely different from the sun's light, 
the sun's light is hot and it's shifted towards the yellow part of the spectrum. Whereas the light from the moon is cold and more silvery. Heat is essentially infrared light. So in order for the moon to absorb the heat from the sun and not reflect it, it would have to be a deep green color to absorb the infrared. So unless the moon is made out of green cheese, it is not reflecting the sun's light. It appears that the moon is not a sphere and it's not reflecting the sun. It is self-luminous. Also, we should be able to see a slightly different view of the moon depending on where on the globe Earth we happen to be. But this is not what we see. It doesn't matter where we are on Earth, we always seem to see the same view of the moon. Now, my friend Nolan pointed out that this is obviously a very exaggerated picture. The moon is supposedly 30 Earth diameters away from the Earth itself. But even so, that difference in position should give you a slight difference from point A to point B. But again, that's not what we see. So apparently the moon is 238,000 miles away. But if you just put that aside for a second and just look at the moon, perhaps you'll notice this. In this example, only the clouds close to the moon are lit up, not the clouds further away. That indicates that the moon is much, much closer than we've been told. Because if the moon were 238,000 miles away, then all the clouds should be illuminated, not just the ones closest to it. And here's an example of a schoolboy mistake. This is a famous picture from Apollo 8, which is entitled Earthrise. It was taken from above the moon's surface, looking back at the Earth. The only problem is, the Earth appears the same size as the moon appears from the Earth but the Earth is four times the size of the Moon. So it should have looked like this. Somebody screwed up. Now, there will be some people who still think we went to the Moon. I can't believe that there are still people who think that 1969 technology went over 400,000 miles managed to navigate to the moon using computers that were orders of magnitude less powerful than the first iPhone, passing through the immensely hazardous Van Allen radiation belts, which, by the way, NASA cannot figure out how to get through today, somehow landed on the moon, spent a delightful few days planting flags, playing golf, riding around on dune buggies, and then took off, or rather levitated off the, off the lunar surface, um, only briefly nipping back to pick up the person operating the camera, and returned safely. And not just once, but seven times. <laughs> it's a fantasy. The whole thing is a fantasy. Everything you saw supposedly on the moon was in a soundstage using Stanley Kubrick's perfected front projection technology. And I'm not going to spend much time. There's plenty of evidence to show that uh, it was completely faked. It was complete fantasy.
marathon challenges student teams from around the world to design, build, So despite the Apollo moon hoax, there are people who still believe that man is in space and we have all sorts of space vehicles and satellites and space stations up there. It's time to have a look at the space shuttle. So let's take a look at a typical shuttle launch. T minus 17 seconds and count to the shuttle's trajectory. Now, as a kid, I often wondered why it was that all rockets and space shuttle launches, they never ever went straight up. They always curved off to one side. Now, I remember being told at the time that it's because the Earth is spinning and the rocket is actually still going straight up, but from our point of view, we're just spinning away from it, so it looks curved. Hmm. Well, you can't have it both ways. If, uh, if that's the case, then when we jump into the air, we should land about a kilometer to the west. So you can't have it both ways. The quickest way into orbit would be straight up. Going horizontal would be the long way around. Let's continue. <laughs> Okay, at this point, the shuttle is horizontal. That is, it's not getting any higher, it's simply traveling horizontally along the ground. And as you'll see in a few seconds, when the booster rockets separate, they still fall to the ground under the influence of so-called gravity. Solid rocket booster separation confirmed. Guidance now converging. Discoveries on board computers commanding the main engine nozzles to swivel, aiming the shuttle for its precise target in space for main engine cutoff. Okay, 
to negative return. Copy, negative return. So ground-based video ends there. Not because the shuttle is too high, but because it's too far away downrange. As I said, it's traveling horizontally at this point. So what's missing is what they call MECO, main engine cutoff. That means the, the shuttle no longer has any power behind it whatsoever. But after MECO is the external tank separation. As you can see from this diagram, when the tank separates, it falls back to Earth. So what's stopping the space shuttle following the same exact trajectory? Between main engine cutoff and this ohms burn, the space shuttle should follow the exact same trajectory as the external tank, but it magically does not. And conveniently, there's no video cameras to show exactly what happens. The point here is that at external tank separation, both the shuttle and the external tank are subject to this so-called force of gravity. Neither the shuttle or the external tank are in space. And yet they want us to believe that there is an orbital maneuvering system which is capable of blasting the shuttle from this point, which is still in the Earth's atmosphere, into orbit. Well, the clue is in the name of the thing, orbital maneuvering system, not orbital insertion system. Where's the fuel for this? There isn't an external tank anymore. So there isn't enough fuel to blast this shuttle into orbit, even from this height. And on the subject of height, where does space actually begin? In this shot, the space shuttle is supposedly in space because the cargo bay doors are open. But you can see the features on the ground in great detail. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to see such detail from a passenger jet at 35,000 feet. Look, you can see roads and rivers and individual fields. Anyway, once the shuttle has completed its mission, it's now a glider. So let's have a look at a video of a glider landing. on the orbiter as it rolls out on the uh, runway. 
at the Kennedy Space Center, wrapping up a nearly 5.3 million mile mission. Endeavor returning the first educator mission specialist, Barbara Morgan, to Earth to begin the next step in her journey to inspire future generations to explore, learn, and build a better future. woman from NASA employed to state the bleeding obvious is there to distract you from the fact that it's a bloody jet plane tarted up to look like a space shuttle. It's not a glider at all. You can clearly hear the jet engines powering down. When you look at the back of the space shuttle, you can see two odd-shaped pods. These are supposedly the orbital maneuvering system. On the front of these pods are two odd-shaped holes. Hmm, why would a rocket engine need some kind of air intake? Wouldn't it be dangerous to put such air intakes on the back of a shuttle, which on takeoff is going over 10,000 miles an hour? Wouldn't they just rip right off? Very strange. No, these holes are precisely what you'd have if you wanted to hide an air intake to a jet engine. So here's a conspiracy theory. If I was on the receiving end of upwards of 200 billion of taxpayers' money, perhaps this is what I would do. I'd spend a few million on some of what they call hero models. Space shuttle mock-ups that look the part, have lots of flashing lights and computer screens and stuff, but are not flyable. They'll end up collecting dust in museums anyway. Then I'd have a few mock-ups that I would fly into space but really would basically fly out of sight and ditch in the sea, getting destroyed in the process. Then I would spend a few million, perhaps even a billion, let's give the taxpayers their money's worth. I'll spend a billion or so on developing a plane that looks like the space shuttle. There you go, job done. Uh, No refunds. So let's change the launch profile of the space shuttle for my new classified one. We have a remote-controlled, full-size mock-up, basically nothing inside, just an empty shell. That's uh, flown up on remote control on essentially a big firework. Everything acts as normal. The booster rockets detach as normal. But when we get to the external tank separation, that doesn't actually happen. What actually happens is the tank and the shuttle fall back to Earth where they ditch in the sea and get destroyed in the process. After the mission's complete, a space shuttle plane takes off from an undisclosed location and lands at an Air Force base in front of the TV cameras. Simple. Don't be ridiculous, Dave. You couldn't fake something like that. There'd be too many people involved. And the truth is bound to get out. Lam, 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 lam. The best example of space shuttle fakery is the Challenger disaster. In 1986, the shuttle Challenger exploded about 74 seconds after takeoff, killing all seven astronauts inside. Or did it? It turns out that six of the seven are still alive and kicking today. Ellison Onizuka 
claims to be his identical twin brother, Claude. Yeah, I've got an identical twin brother, Claude, too. The Challenger pilot, Mickey Smith, hasn't even bothered changing his name. He's now Professor Michael J. Smith of the University of Wisconsin. Now, Krista McAuliffe was a bit of a sneaky one. She was the Challenger payload specialist, quite famous for being a teacher. It turns out, during her astronaut days, she was using her middle name, Krista. And now she goes by her first name, Sharon. And she's a Syracuse law professor. The Challenger commander, Francis Richard Scobie, is now Dick Scobie, which sounds like a rather unpleasant disease, CEO of Cows and Trees Limited. Judith Resnick, the Challenger mission specialist, again, hasn't even bothered changing her name. She's a professor at Yale Law. And finally, Ronald McNair, another Challenger mission specialist, claims to be his identical twin brother, Carl McNair. What are the odds? And now we come to the imaginings of this man here. Arthur C. Clarke, Freemason and science fiction writer, came up with the concept of the telecommunication satellite. And several years later, we have thousands of telecommunication satellites supposedly spinning around the planet. Again, though, strangely enough, if you try and look for images of communication satellites, despite the fact that there are thousands of these things up there, you don't actually find a photograph of them. Just lots and lots of CGI photoshopped images. The problem is that satellites inhabit a region of the upper atmosphere known as the thermosphere. It gets its name because the temperatures up there reach something in the order of 2,500 degrees centigrade. This is a source of some confusion. Although Wikipedia says that it reaches such high temperatures, it also says, paradoxically, that you wouldn't actually feel the heat because there's not enough air molecules up there to heat you up. Yeah, right. doesn't quite work like that. The vacuum of space is actually a perfect insulator, which is why we use a vacuum barrier in thermos flasks. The heat from the inside cannot be conducted or convected to the outside. The sun's radiation does not actually heat space up. As I said, the vacuum is a perfect insulator. The sun's radiation traverses space until it hits some object. And when it does, that object absorbs the heat and the temperature rises and keeps rising. And without an atmosphere to conduct or convect the heat away, the temperature will rise up to and over 2,500 degrees. So the Hubble telescope, for instance, would look something like this. All the satellites and the space shuttle and the International Space Station, they would all be molten slabs of metal spinning around in orbit. But let's put that aside for a moment. There are supposedly between 25,000 and 50,000 satellites in orbit. But let's have a look at some video supposedly from the International Space Station.
Can you see any one of these 26,000 to 50,000 satellites? I can't. Now, take a look at this. Hello, Katie. 
Notice how suddenly she starts to wave. Hello? She floats out of control. This is so cool, isn't it? Hey, Katie, well, I want to ask aboard a question. Welcome aboard the space station. Look at this. Wow. The same thing happens here. As the plane starts its zero-G dive, the people start to spontaneously place upwards. The other problem with this technique is that this aircraft can only simulate zero gravity in 45 seconds to a minute first. So NASA employs many little tricks here to uh, simulate weightlessness. None of their footage is live. It's all pre-recorded and edited. So plenty of scope there to use some of the cinematic tricks that we're used to, like harnesses and wires that are edited out later with CGI. But here we can see one of the tricks they use to maintain continuity between periods of weightlessness. Take a look at this woman's hair. Does it look a bit strange to you? Look how it seems to spring back into place. We're led to believe that uh, this is an effect of weightlessness, that the hair will just sort of float around. But it doesn't quite seem natural, does it? Here's video from the Vomit Comet again. Watch the way this woman's hair flows as she moves. seems quite obvious now that this is some kind of perm or hairspray so that between periods of weightlessness we get that visual continuity. Now there are plenty of examples of these gravitational anomalies but I'm not going to spend too much time on it. I just wanted to show that all these things that you can see from NASA can be simulated and CGI'd up for your benefit. They don't seem to do any real scientific experiments up there. The effort seems to be just to get you to believe that they're there. That's it. There are also plenty of anomalies when you look at spacewalks. For footage of spacewalks on the exterior of the International Space Station, NASA will freely admit they have a huge swimming pool called the Neutral Buoyancy Lab where they train their astronauts. And within this huge swimming pool, they have a mock-up of the exterior of the International Space Station. I'm going to show you a video from a YouTuber called Jungle Surfer, who's done the best expose of spacewalking anomalies. Another aspect of the illusion of space travel is spacewalks. These are faked inside a swimming pool. It's a custom-built swimming pool. And that's a great way to fake zero gravity. About six months ago in 2013, a gallon of water leaked into one of their spacesuits in a matter of seconds. NASA doesn't really have a proper explanation for how on earth this could have happened. There shouldn't be water leaking into someone's helmet and a person almost drowning in space. How can you drown in space? They now wear snorkels to make sure that they don't drown in space. How can this be happening? A snorkel in space? There could be some water in the porous plate sublimator. When they were on the moon, they supposedly had a, about a gallon of water, but that cooling system is supposed to be well away from their head. There really is no sane explanation for why a gallon of water would leak into someone's spacesuit, unless you realise the whole thing is faked inside 
a swimming pool. In this scene, you can see the Chinese spacewalk, and you can see a bubble coming up from the guy's suit. How do you have a bubble in space? Space is supposed to be a vacuum, not a swimming pool, but it's obviously just a swimming pool filled with water. Obviously, there would be some equipment that they could only fix from the outside, but a lot of these spacewalks, it seems like equipment they easily could have configured to be accessible from the inside of the International Space Station. It seems more like an excuse to get out and show their other space trick, which is the faking of spacewalks in a swimming pool. In this vid, you catch a glimpse of someone wearing a scuba tank Scuba tanks in space? Snorkels and scuba tanks in space? They act like a spacewalk is just a walk in the park, like there's very little danger involved at all. They're looking through the spacesuits. Oh, here's a spacesuit. We're going to go for a spacewalk as if there's no danger at all. Like they don't care. They don't care. They, they don't act like they're in a life threatening situation like they could die at any second even though they can so you'd think to preserve their life they would want to minimize the amount of space walking that they did but there seems to be an abundance of equipment on the outside of the international space station that constantly requires repairing which makes for a good tv spectacle and is inspired by movies like sandra bullock's gravity and after Gravity came out, they, of course, had to do another spacewalk to fix some emergency, some piece of equipment that their lives depend on that, amazingly, they can fix every time. But you know what? Thanks to the genius of the engineers at NASA, they employ snorkels in space now, so that should stop them from drowning. Finally, I'm going to leave the last word to one of the astronauts themselves when he made a tiny little slip-up during a question-and-answer session. Take note of his body language after he makes his mistake. Hello, my name is Bailey. Uh, this question is for Chris. What was high school like for you? Well, it was the uh, 1980s, so the music was different, the hairstyle was different, the clothes we wore were different uh, than today, but probably in five or ten years it'll be the same. And uh, in, in school, I was just like you, probably all of you there. I, I tried my best. I didn't always succeed, didn't always do well, but I, I, I put my best effort into school. Math and science were kind of my favorite subject. I didn't really like uh, English in, in reading too much, but I've since grown out of that, and I enjoy reading now. And I played a lot of sports. And all of that happened in a little town called York, Maine, across the United States from where we're talking to you right now. Whoops. Called York, Maine, across the United States from where we're talking to you right now. Hello, my name is Steve Owen. I'm a teacher here at Riverside Prep. I'd like to ask you about the stress associated with the long periods in the space station. I'd like to ask Karen, uh, what is the training that you get to cope with that stress and related psychological issues? Well, for psychological issues, actually, when, we're, when we are selected as astronauts, we go through quite a, quite a vigorous psychological screening process. Um, you certainly don't want somebody who can who comes up here and and, and has a breakdown or is claustrophobic. Um, but also, 
we have, um, well, like Chris's background as a Navy SEAL and Luca's background as a test pilot clearly prepare them for high-stress situations. Um, I could also argue that going through your, the process of getting a Ph.D. can be a high-stress high stress thing as well. And so generally when people get to the point where these, they're applying for these, this job, they've been through um, several things in their life that are high-stress and have proven that, it, that they can handle Humans in space. I'm not even sure there is such a thing as space anymore. So could the Earth really be flat? Most people, when they think of a flat Earth, immediately think, what happens when you get to the edge? Well, the flat Earth model is a flat circular disk with a north magnetic pole in the center, and all the continents are laid out around it. On the edge of this disk is a wall of ice, and we call it Antarctica. There is no South Pole. That's why you can't fall off the flat Earth. The wall of ice keeps the oceans in and stops you from reaching the edge. Strangely enough, the only other place that this model is used is in the United Nations logo. Looks like they know something that we don't. As you can see on the UN logo, the flat Earth map is overlaid with a grid. And that grid divides the Earth into 33 sections. Hmm. And also, there's no Antarctica on this map. It's almost as if that grid were like bars, like a cell locking us away from Antarctica, which is precisely what they're doing. The United Nations countries are all signatories to the Antarctica Treaty, which basically bans anybody from going to Antarctica. And if there's any absolute proof of either the globe Earth or the flat one, then I believe the answers would be in Antarctica. But before we examine Antarctica, I'd like to take a look at flight in the Southern Hemisphere. Now, this information came to me through Mark Sargent, and his flat earth clues. A lot of people say that Mark is a shill. I communicated with him over email. He seemed like a decent bloke. So I'm not going to say he's a shill. He has his ideas, his views, his perspectives, as I have mine, and everybody else has theirs. So I'm not going to say he's a shill. But nonetheless, his flat earth clues were very well done, and I got a lot out of them. So thank you, Mark. The crux of this issue is the lack of direct flights in the Southern Hemisphere. I took a look at some of these flights and uh, particularly focused on flights from Cape Town to Auckland, New Zealand. Generally, flights in the Southern Hemisphere tend to be indirect with one or more connections and lengthy layovers, such as the case with this one from Cape Town to Auckland. This flight came out around about 37 hours with a connecting flight in Dubai. Now, if you look on a map, Cape Town to Auckland is a straight shot across the Indian Ocean, 7,310 miles. That should take about 12 hours. But in this case, we're taking thousands of miles north to Dubai, then back down south to Melbourne, and then across to Auckland. It doesn't make any sense. Until that is, you look at it on the flat earth model. Now you can see it's a straight line from Cape Town to Dubai to Melbourne. 
and the distance is more like 16,000 miles. So the total journey time of 37 hours is there to hide the fact that your actual flight time is 26 hours rather than 11 or 12. Now, I did find one direct flight operated by Qantas, but who knows? The flight was 14 hours long, but does that flight actually exist? I don't know. Short of booking that flight and flying it, I wouldn't know. But it strikes me that you could advertise such a flight, price it beyond the reach of most people, and cancel it for anybody who does take it. But that's just speculation. Now, the GPS system would obviously show up any anomalies in the flight plan, but it seems they've found a very simple way of uh, getting around that problem. And that is switching off GPS tracking for all flights in the Southern Hemisphere. Now, this is an image from Flight Tracker, and you can see straight off that in the Northern Hemisphere, you'll see planes over the ocean, but there are none in the Southern Hemisphere. Now, I spent some time looking at it on, on flighttracker.com, and I actually verified this information, but I couldn't capture the data on my computer. So here's a video of planes disappearing and reappearing of the tracking systems. So hey guys, I'm on planefinder.net. I'm tracking airplanes in the Southern Hemisphere, trying to do some research to verify or debunk this flat earth guy. And what he said is that airplanes disappear in the South Atlantic near the, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere when they fly over oceans. And it's true. I was tracking a British Airways flight from Buenos Aires to London. And I was tracking, I was tracking, and then it disappeared. And then I clicked on this plane right here, KTAR. See how the flight path, like when you click on the plane, the flight path uh, appears or disappears, right? So I clicked on this plane looking for my British Airways flight, and I found this flight, and look, see how the flight path just starts in the middle of nowhere right here? This flight path starts in the middle of nowhere. That's because what they do with flights in the Southern Hemisphere is they disappear and they turn off the GPS over the ocean and then they reappear the flights about an hour before landing. And that's exactly what the flat earth guy said they do. And that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> All right, this guy's going to Rome. Okay. So this is a, uh, this is a pretty good flight to track because it's going all the way to Europe. So I just clicked on this flight, same thing. This guy, we should have saw him before when we were tracking the other plane and when we were tracking this plane that's heading to Rome. But this guy, when we were tracking the plane headed to Rome, he wasn't even on the map. He's coming from Abu Dhabi in the Middle East. He's been in the air for, what, 12, 13, 14, 15 hours? He's been in the air for 7,000 miles, and we're just picking him up right here. <laughs> we're just picking him up in the middle of nowhere. Look, they disappeared the flight over the entire ocean. 
and they're reappearing it for landing about an hour before landing. Think about it. He's got 500 miles to go. It's about an hour before landing, just like the flat earth guy said. I mean, take a look at what this guy's flight path should look like on a flat earth model. This stuff's crazy. You have to look into this for yourselves. Don't pretend like you know everything because you only know what you've been taught and we know that the stuff we've been taught was a bunch of bullshit. So we need to question everything. Question everything. But don't believe everything. Question everything. There's a big difference. Now, I know a lot of this evidence seems circumstantial, but there are many flights in the Southern Hemisphere that have stopovers in seemingly nonsensical places that only make sense on a flat Earth. Santiago, Chile to Auckland, for instance, stops over in Los Angeles. Nonsensical on a globe makes perfect sense on a flat Earth. And the only way to verify these flight paths just happens to be switched off for all Southern Hemisphere flights. Circumstantial, I'll grant you, but compelling nonetheless. So let's take a close look at Antarctica. The first thing you'd encounter when you reached Antarctica would be a 200-foot wall of ice, followed by 300 miles of Antarctic desert. No life, no vegetation, and temperatures that drop to minus 100 degrees centigrade. And if you manage to survive that, then you encounter a mountain range two miles high. Those mountains are called the Rockefeller Mountains, and at the top is the Rockefeller Plateau. Interesting. And beyond that, nobody knows what's there. Apart from maybe one man, Richard E. Byrd. Admiral Byrd led three expeditions down to Antarctica. Now, the last two weren't just expeditions. They were military operations, Operation High Jump and Operation Deep Freeze. And here's Admiral Byrd explaining what he found down there. Admiral Byrd, our guest tonight, is not only our greatest living explorer, but he's been an inspiration to countless Americans. Admiral Byrd, you've been to both the North Pole and the South Pole. Is there any unexplored land left on this Earth? Uh, Yes, there is. But strangely enough, there's left in the world today an area as big as the United States that's never been seen by a human being. And that's beyond the pole on the other side of the South Pole from middle America. And it's, uh, I think it's quite astonishing that there should be an area as big as that unexplored. That's a tremendous So story. there's a lot of adventure left down at the bottom of the world. Why this interest in the bottom of the world? Nobody living down there, is it? It happens to be an untouched reservoir of natural resources. What are they? What uh, What are the natural resources there? Well, uh, we've found enough coal within 180 miles of the South Pole in a great uh, ridge of mountains. It's not covered in snow. Enough to supply the whole world for quite a while. Uh, that's, that's the coal. Now, there's evidence of uh, other, many other minerals. Uh, we're pretty sure there's oil. Now, that coal shows the bottom of the world. Now, by far, the coldest spot in the world. Where that coal is gets 100 below zero in the winter. Well, uh, it was once tropical. So uh, we think there's oil there, and there's evidence probably uranium. 
As I said, it's the most peaceful place in the world, but I don't think it will be for long. Because of this intense interest on the part of, uh, of other nations and this nation. So I'm willing to say to you that uh, there will be a number of expeditions that will follow, I think, uh, year after year. Immediately after Admiral Byrd's last expedition, the Antarctic Treaty was signed and nobody was allowed to go there. Bearing in mind all the mineral resources, unlimited coal, unlimited oil, uranium, and an entire continent the size of North America lying unexplored. Now, we're talking about countries who burn down rainforests without batting an eyelid, or put up drilling rigs at the merest sniff of oil, or destroy pristine countrysides to build fracking wells. Do you think for one moment any of these countries or corporations will leave all that untapped wealth unexploited? Something doesn't ring true. Now, I don't know for sure that we live on a flat earth, but I do know that we're not clinging onto the surface of a ball. <coughs> now let's look at the how and why. How have they managed to pull this off? Well, indoctrination since childhood. There's pretty much a globe in every classroom, and it's just a given that the world is a sphere. Even our language reflects it. Global finance and around the globe. And when we're taught things in childhood and everything we look at supports that view, then we rarely go back and re-examine it. But far and away, the main basis of our belief is the supposed history of our scientific endeavor. What most people don't realize is that all the characters in this story are all actors in the same club. As George Carlin put it, it's a big club and you're not in it. Ptolemy, who first put forward the heliocentric model, was acknowledged as the first mason. Copernicus was a Jesuit priest. Sir Isaac Newton was a Freemason. All the astronauts are Freemasons. So you can see how this lie could work if all these celebrated people are telling the same story. Another way we're programmed is by centralized and complete control over space information and access to space. That control is held by the space agencies around the world, NASA and RASA and the European Space Agency. It turns out that NASA is essentially composed of Nazis. Look up Operation Paperclip. NASA was actually formed from Nazi scientists transplanted to America after the war. I need not remind most people that the Nazi approach to propaganda is if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. And finally, we've had decades of programming through entertainment media, over a hundred years of science fiction books and stories and television programs and films. I must admit to being a science fiction fan myself. I grew up watching Star Trek, Star Wars, Babylon 5, Battlestar Galactica, watching films like 2001, 2010. I truly believe that our future lay in space. I saw an exciting future for mankind, moon bases, Mars bases, interstellar travel, but now I sincerely doubt there is any such thing as space.
it turns out the Bible had a very clear conception of what the Earth and the universe looks like. And that matches the flat Earth model more than it does the globe. And that only leaves why. Why have they done this? What's the point of this grand deception? I think Eric Dubay explained it best. Uh, yeah, I mean, our eyes and experience tell us the Earth is flat and motionless and everything in the sky revolves around us. But when we cease to believe our own eyes and experience, we have to prostrate ourselves at the feet of these very pseudoscientists who are blinding us, treat them as experts, astronomical priests who have special knowledge only they can access, like the Hubble telescope. So by brainwashing us of something so gigantic and fundamental, it actually makes every other kind of lesser indoctrination a piece of cake. <laughs> Earth being the flat, fixed center of the universe around which everything in the heavens revolves gives a special importance and significance, not only to Earth, but to us humans, the most intelligent among the intelligent designers' designs. By turning Earth into a spinning ball thrown around the sun and shot through infinite space from a godless Big Bang, they turn humanity into a random, meaningless, purposeless accident of a blind, dumb universe. Mm -hmm. So it's like trauma-based mind control beating the divinity out of us with their mental manipulations. Uh, people are always asking, you know, why do they do this? I mean, this is, I mean, other than the obvious profit margin motive, NASA being the biggest black budget black hole in existence, sucking in over $30 billion taxpayer money for the fake moon landings alone. Nowadays, hundreds of billions of dollars, and not just NASA, but RASA and all the other fake space organizations around the world giving CGI images for hundreds of billions of dollars. So this modern atheist big bang heliocentric globe earth chance evolution paradigm spiritually controls humanity by removing God or any sort of intelligent design and replaces purposeful divine creation with haphazard random cosmic coincidence. And so by removing earth from the motionless center of the universe, these masons have moved us physically and metaphysically from a place of supreme importance to one of complete nihilistic indifference. If the earth is the center of the universe, then the ideas of God, creation, and a purpose for human existence are resplendent. But if the earth is just one of billions of planets revolving around billions of stars and billions of galaxies, then the ideas of God, creation, and a specific purpose for earth and human existence become highly implausible. So by surreptitiously indoctrinating us into their scientific materialist sun worship, not only do we lose faith in anything beyond the material, we gain absolute faith in materiality, superficiality, status, selfishness, hedonism, and consumerism. If there's no God and everyone's just an accident, then all that really matters is me, me, me. So they've turned Madonna, the mother of God, into a, the material girl living in a material world. They're rich, powerful corporations with their slick, Sun cult logos sell us idols to worship, slowly taking over the world while we tacitly believe their science, vote for their politicians, buy their products, listen to their music, watch their movies, all sacrificing our souls at the altar of materialism. <laughs> it's a big, it's a big deception. I'd say it's the the biggest cover up and conspiracy in history. We've been completely deluded for 500 years. So there you have it. There are a great many other points I could have raised, and I've barely scratched the surface. But if any of these points are true, then we have to abandon the model we've accepted thus far. Now, I don't know for sure that the Earth is flat, but I've seen enough evidence to make me strongly feel that that is the case.
And moreover, my spidey sense, my intuition, tells me that this is true. I don't know what's beyond Antarctica. It could be a dome. It could be an infinite flat plane. It could even be just more Earth. More Earth than we realize, just as Admiral Byrd found. There are many who think that ultimately this is unimportant and just a distraction. But I see this as one of the most important revelations we could ever have. If this is the case, if this flat Earth is our universe, then it elevates man and this Earth to supreme importance, where every life, human or otherwise, is significant and sacred. And when we all realize that, then the world, the universe, changes. BC, there lived a hunter named Nimrod in Babylon, which was located between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Whenever wild animals threatened the people, he protected them with his power. As people respected and supported him, Nimrod became arrogant and incited people to build the Tower of Babel. Let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Such deeds of Nimrod that were against God has continued even after Nimrod had died. Semiramis, Nimrod's wife, insisted that Nimrod became the sun god. She cut Nimrod's dead body into pieces and sent them to each tribe of Babylon. People regarded the place where a part of Nimrod was buried as sacred. She also claimed that Nimrod was reincarnated as her son. The sun god Nimrod was reincarnated as my son Samut. He who believes and follows Samut follows Nimrod. As Semiramis ruled over Babylon in place of her young son Tammuz, she maneuvered people into worshiping her. Monuments of Semiramis carrying her child Tammuz in her arms were set up all over Babylon along with various images symbolizing the sun god. The sun worship and the mother-child worship which was a scheme devised by Semiramis put down roots as a religion of Babylon.
Idolatry stemmed from Babylon spread to many countries after the Tower of Babel collapsed. It is because when the Babylonians were scattered over the whole world, they brought the sun worship and the mother-child worship. The sun worship and the mother-child worship were assimilated into the cultures and religions of many countries, and they came to have various forms and names. Nimrod, the sun god, was known as Mithra in Persia, Sol in Rome, Ra or Horus in Egypt, and Apollo in Greece. Semiramis and Tammuz, who were the start of the mother-child worship, was called Isis and Horus, Venus and Dionysus, Diana and Attis, and Astaroth and Tammuz, respectively. Besides these, the image of goddess, who is holding a baby in her arms, was venerated in many countries of the world. If so, was the mother-child worship the creature of an age, which was especially welcomed only in Babylon? Surprisingly, the mother-child worship of Babylon has been passed down through the thousands of years and still exists today. In Vatican of Rome, we can find the mother-child worship in its original state. Islamic militants are unleashing brutality and bloodshed in Iraq. This is ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, driving toward Baghdad. The jihadist groups so extreme, even Al-Qaeda wants nothing to do with them. We're in a pretty scary place if Al-Qaeda is disavowing people for their violence. Iraq on the verge of total collapse as terrorists capture city after city. There are a Sunni Muslim jihadist group has formed a year ago and pledging to create an Islamic state across Iraq, Syria, and Haiti. They have strongholds in significant parts of northern Syria, too, including Azaz, Raqqa, and Abu Kamal. They took Fallujah five months ago. Now they have Mosul. It appears to have taken the city of Tikrit as well. But their ambitions go far wider to create a Muslim caliphate, a single Islamic state, to include not just Jordan and Palestinian territories, but Israel too, and much of North Africa, if jihad makes progress there as well. All of this is now ringing alarm bells among world leaders. the legitimacy of ISIS's gruesome behavior. Violence so horrific. From beheading to forced amputations, it's one of the most extreme groups in the region. Too extreme even for Al-Qaeda, which formally rejected them earlier this year. The 12th Imam, they believe, will eventually come back in the last days. It's just growing uh, problems. It's chaos. It's war. But once that ends, the infidels will have been defeated, and the Mullahs will rule over a peaceful Islamic world. Ahmadinejad and the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood believe 
that they can hasten the return of the 12th Imam or Mahdi. For the 12th Imam to return and bring an Islamic paradise, you have to have chaos. Lots and lots of bloodshed. ISIS have crucified a man in Syria. The UN has confirmed that militant Islamic state ISIS has ordered all women and girls in Mosul to undergo female genital mutilation. Females between the ages of 11 and 46. Pure, unadulterated, unequivocated evil. A video uh, that was shot by Muslims, all members of ISIS in Syria. And they are filming the heads of their victims on poles. The heads are on poles. This is something that came from the ancient world. I mean, it's something the pagans would do back in the day. We watch horrific images of Christians being beheaded, uh, slaughtered, their throats slit. Uh, absolutely mowed down, shot in the back of the head, everything that's going on, and still there's this suspension of belief that that would ever come here. This is the prophetic word of God for the last days out of Matthew chapter 10. Their goal is, like I said, a religious cleansing. And they're talking about doing it not just in the Middle East. Am I correct about that? Well, I, I think it would be naive to assume that they would stop uh, with, with just Iraq and Syria and some of these other countries. I, I'm sure there's a, there's a bigger plan there. It is, in fact, a genocide that's going on. Thousands of Christians are being killed or forced to flee from their homes. We now know tourists, Al-Qaeda breakaway group known as the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, have declared the creation of an Islamic state. And let's be clear here, ISIS does not just threaten the region, it also threatens the U.S. We know that ISIS is planning uh, and aspires to carry out attacks on the U.S. homeland. The next 9-11 is in the making. But anyway, we're going to get into the significance of all what's going on here. And um, this is where they're occupying now. Now, if you notice, this is the uh, Iraqi area, all the areas that they're occupying in Jordan and such. And here's the, actually the map here. Syria, Iraq, and this is also used to be Babylon back in the Bible days. And ISIS is seizing control of the whole area. And it's not a coincidence that it's called ISIS. Yeah, people say, oh, it's just uh, an acronym for Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. No, it goes beyond that, folks. And um, as you can see, this is the old Babylonian map of Babylon. Now look at the Syria, Iraq, same area, same area where Babylon, the Babylonian Empire ruled, happens to be, not coincidental, the same area that uh, ISIS is actually taking over. Not a, and it's not a coincidence why they're called ISIS either. And again, if you look at the maps here, there's uh, Iraq, today's map of Iraq and Syria and such. And this is where ISIS is occupying. And now look at, let's look at the Babylonian Empire of uh, 600 B.C. It's not a coincidence, folks. And ISIS is also known as, she's a queen goddess. She's also, her name is also Samaramis. Uh, so Isis is an Egyptian and Samaramis, she's the queen goddess of the rule of Babylon. And um, there was a tower of Babylon there that her husband built, which was um, Nimrod. And Nimrod here, you see Nimrod, which is also, they call him Osiris in Egyptianology. So you got Nimrod, uh, Isis, uh, Nimrod, Samaramis, and Samut. 
Tammuz, I'm sorry. And uh, the Egyptians' names are uh, Osiris, Isis, and Horus, the sun god. Now, this is all Egyptianology. Also, they were the rulers of Babylon. And after uh, Nimrod died here, um, this is when uh, Tammuz was uh, supposed to be born out of his phallic symbol. Long story with that, but I mean, just study Egyptianology to know what we're talking about here. But anyway, long story short, these are the rulers of Babylon. And the reason why he's always depicted green for, especially in masonry and high levels of the cult, Nimrod or Osiris, whatever you want to call him, he's always depicted as green. And these folks, these are the kings of all the Eastern religions out there. Every Eastern religion in the world, they have different names for the gods and goddesses. But they're all actually this person. When Babylon fell, Let's go back to the map here. When Babylon fell, all the nations split up. The angels with the tongues on it split all the nations up, and they took splinters of the old Babylonian religion to the uh, the cultures there, where the tower fell. And um, all those eastern gods and goddesses are actually these three here: sun god Horus, uh, those you know the, the star Sirius. The Pleiades and Orion, that's where the Masons and um, Luminati build their structures uh, in depiction of. And uh, um, Isis here, she's the queen goddess. Now, she actually ruled that one to the people she was a good woman. But she was actually more horrific than, um, than Nimrod himself. Hey, Fox News alert. Growing concern that the terror tirade in Iraq will soon be coming here to the United States. The seeds of 9-11 are being planted all over Iraq and Syria. You don't have to believe me. This is what they're telling you they're going to do. I am concerned, uh, and I think all Americans should be concerned. I guarantee you this is a problem that we will have to face. We're either going to face it in New York City or we're going to face it here. Well, that is pretty scary. With more on the threat, Peter Johnson Jr. joins us live. Yeah, good morning, Steve. And I think all we have to do is look at the words of Colonel Kenneth King, who's the former commander of Camp Boca Prison in Iraq. Let's see his experience. And that's the fear coming to a city, including New York, as a result of what they're doing. It's important to understand who al-Baghdadi is. He's got a Ph.D. in Islamic studies from Baghdad University. He's considered one of the most brutal leaders in the world now. His nickname is the Invisible Sheik. He was detained at Camp Boca, as you know, and then pushed out of Al Qaeda in 2013. And now we know that there's a $10 million bounty for his death or capture. Eerily similar and perceived by many of the Al Qaeda and former Al Qaeda forces, including the people of ISIS, as the logical successor to Osama bin Laden. And a lot of foreign policy experts are saying that the similarities are too eerie and too disturbing in terms of the way that Afghanistan was going in the 1990s to the way that Iraq is now proceeding in 2014. We only have to look at the radio address that al-Baghdadi gave last January. This is disturbing. He said, our last message is to the Americans. Soon we will be in direct confrontation, and the sons of Islam have prepared for such a day. So watch, for we are with you watching. It's all scary about this. So that's the guy who's running that's ISIS guy. right now. And this the is the same guy we had in prison, and now and, 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 and let him and released and allegedly made a threat at the time that he left Camp 
Booker, then we need to be on the defensive and the offensive to ensure safety in our city. The continuing, continuing battle in this war on terror. We are also learning more about the leader of the terror group, a man described as the new Bin Laden, the heir to Bin Laden. It turns out he had been in U.S. custody until 2009 over in Iraq, when he was then handed over to the Iraqi government as part of our troop drawdown. And then he was released. Now he has led this effort to create an Islamic caliphate, a nation state moved by harsh, radical Islamic law and dedicated to killing, quote, non-believers and spreading its power as far as it can. Ken King is the former commander of the prison where that man was held until his release in 2009. Ken, thank you so much for being here. The most disgusting, vile terror group we've seen in recent history. Leader is a man known as Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Uh, he is so elusive that we only have a couple of grainy photographs of him. But al-Baghdadi now commands uh, several thousand men in Iraq and Syria, where he's trying to set up a state based on Islamic law. Al-Baghdadi is so feared that some people have dubbed him the new Osama bin Laden, and the U.S. government has placed a $10 million bounty on his head. And here we go again. Every few years, the U.S. government props up a new boogeyman for the masses to fear. And so the latest corporate mainstream media, terrorist propaganda, deception is in full swing. And this time, it is in the form of a group called ISIS, which of course has deep occult meaning. What we are seeing here is another psychological operation being thrust on the masses to instill fear and tug at the heartstrings of every individual still stuck in the corporate, elite, government-owned, mainstream media paradigm. As we have seen in the past, the shadow government, elite, and mainstream media is able to propagate blatant lies and propaganda in order to create a fictional villain and enemy of America in order to achieve their New World Order agenda. Time and time again, over the past decade, the so-called terrorist group known as Al-Qaeda has been proven to be a creation of the CIA and continues to this day to be operated by the same forces. They have proven to be nothing but fictional boogeymen, along with Osama bin Laden, a.k.a. CIA asset Tim Osman. Among researchers and activists over the years, it is common knowledge that the bin Laden death was a hoax. The mere fact that the U.S. government has never provided any evidence whatsoever proving his death should speak volumes as to the legitimacy of the great war on terror and the idea of terrorists in general and also 9-11. Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda is a fictional villain in the game of war by deception. And so is this new group called ISIS and its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. This so-called extremist group will likely be the scapegoat in the future false flag operation that will lead to another war. As we can see, the next 9-11 false flag fear-mongering is in full swing, and the usual culprits pushing this fear campaign is present as well. Republican South Carolina Senator, New World Order puppet, and agent of evil, Lindsey Graham, is one of the key figureheads of this operation and agenda. Graham made his first fear circuits go around in 2013 when he sounded the alarms of America being nuked. After Obama's State of the Union address, he stated, quote, the world is literally about to blow up, end quote. He was then used to push the fear propaganda for the Syria operation that was no doubt meant to start World War III. He was a key mouthpiece that pushed for Syria intervention. 
which was proven by thousands of activists throughout alternative media and social media networks to be a complete lie, which is why intervention was so widely protested, thus why the Syria operation failed. Graham publicly stated, quote, the United States could suffer a nuclear attack if it did not contain Syria's chemical weapons program, end quote. And, quote, I believe that if we get Syria wrong within six months, and you can quote me on this, there will be a war between Iran and Israel over their nuclear program, end quote. And last but not least, Graham told a crowd in South Carolina, quote, my fear is that it won't come to America on top of a missile. It'll come in the belly of a ship in the Charleston or New York Harbor, end quote. And now he is at it again for the ISIS-Iraq operation. They use the same old puppet mouthpieces because they know the masses will not be paying attention or care. The next now is coming from here. That's very, that's a very serious. That's what they say. And I agree with them. You think that we can have another? Oh, I think it's inevitable. He told us, he told me and the, and the soldiers that were around me, I'll see you in New York. That is just chilling. This man, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, has his eye on New York and his intentions are evil. I'll see you guys in New York. Yes, the fear-mongering, mind-control, corporate mainstream media... This is how they do it. CNN, of course, terrifying execution images in Iraq. Terrifying terror. Terrorists. See, these are the same old words. Uh, They use certain trigger words to evoke certain emotions from you uh, regarding, you know, anything relating to terrorism, you know, evoking the the 9-11 trauma. Uh, And that's what 9-11 was, a trauma-based mind control event. Now they can control the minds of the masses uh, since that event, from that event, moving forward until they reach their goal, they can they can literally control your mind and and play you like a fiddle with every event and every story that they put out using certain words. And this is how mass mind control works through words that trigger fear. And this is how it's done. As you see here, since ISIS came about, this is what they are doing. Yes, viewer discretion is advised. So you see, these are the tactics of the media and how the government and the elite use the media to usher in their new world order agenda through these false flags, through these psychological operations. And remember, under the 2012 NDAA, and I covered this already, but propaganda, a.k.a. lying, a.k.a. bullshitting the public, is legal. (laughs) It is, in fact, legal under the 2012 NDAA to lie to the masses to create, to basically execute psychological operations on the masses. And it is legal. There's not a damn thing we can do about it. We can't prosecute the media. We can't do a damn thing because it is legal under 2012 NDAA. And again, remember the occult significance of the word Isis. It's an Egyptian goddess, deity that is a favorite of the occult mysteries and secret societies that run this planet. Uh, so it's no coincidence here, this terrorist so-called extremist group called ISIS. And what do we have here? Is it also merely a coincidence, merely coincidental, that there's a contractor, U.S. government, called ISIS, 
Yes. All coincidence, I'm sure. ISIS provides worldwide security, intelligence, technology, and training to government and private enterprises. Our Washington, D.C. office is located in Ronald Reagan Building. We are dedicated to supporting our national defense and security departments, as well as government contractors and private business, with mission and critical services performed by highly skilled experts in their fields. Interesting. U.S. Armed Forces, U.S. Government, and prime contractors on the ground in such strategic environments as the Middle East. Uh, see our locations map at the bottom. Multinational Forces, Iraq, theater-wide security services. Interesting choice word. Theater-wide Department of Defense, DOD. Anything else in Iraq? Sure. Iraqi Voting Legislature, Personal Protective Services, Iraq Coalition for Peace. Client, contract, supported organization. You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or you're still dreaming? I know exactly what you mean. Well, uh, another heavy show, huh? A lot of things to think about. I don't know. Okay, for those uh, Americans and people in the world who are too brain dead to figure. So, um, anyways. God bless, take care. Got another busy week. So, all right, take care, bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.